Episode 252, Mitch Unfiltered, and oh my God, look what the cat dragged in, or is it more appropriate, Graz, to say, look what the Shih Tzu dragged in? <laughs> What's going on over there in the Graz family? Mitchie the Kid, it's great to be on again, and um, yes, we have... Uh We've got a new uh, new addition to the family, 11-week-old Shih Tzu puppy. You know, there's nothing quite like puppy energy in a, in a <laughs> old folks' house. And it's been sorely missed. And it's been, it's been just terrific to have him. Although he is so small, I'm afraid I'm going to step on him and, and just squash him out of existence. Well, the crowd is he, yelling. The crowd is yelling, how small is he? He's so small, Graz. He's so small that when Bonnie's friend came in the day, she refused to believe he was real. She thought he was a toy. That can't be real. That can't be real. I mean, he's, he is, Mitchie, he's two and a half pounds tops. Yeah. His carriage, his belly is about an inch and a half off the ground. Uh-huh. He is fearless. So he, 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 when he comes to see you, his tail wags furiously and he walks right underneath your shoes, which is very risky for me. But I mean, it's fantastic. He's added new life to what it. What is so his name? You're burying the lead here, Graz. What is his name? Let me tell you a quick story about how we got to the name. Okay. So we've been, we always bandy back and forth. This is our third dog. So we always bandy back and forth a ton of names. Yeah. We've kind of gone, we've kind of gone with, with tough names for our Shih Tzus in the past because they aren't necessarily <laughs> tough dogs. Uh-huh. Went with Spike first. Yeah. Then our second guy who is a little bit smaller than Spike, uh, we call him Bruiser. So now this one is a, a toy Shih Tzu, Mitch, which I didn't know existed, <laughs> but my wife found it. He'll be probably six, seven pounds when he's fully grown. Those names didn't seem quite right. And... I was watching the Mariner game. Cade Marlow, when he hit a yeah. home run in the ninth inning. Right. A grand slam um, against the uh, Angels? Uh, no. That's the one. Okay. So I, I, I kind of bounced that name off. I said, how about Marlow? And she liked it. Really? Out of the blue. She liked it. Is the name of the player you just saw? And I'm like, well, Philip Marlowe. Great character in, in detective stories in the past. Been played by a lot of great actors. We can yeah. say his name after him. Yeah. And so um, Marlowe it is. Marlowe it is. And I bet you if we gave our audience... 15 guesses as to which Seattle Mariner the Grosbys named their toy Shih Tzu after. I don't think Marlo would have ever come up. No. It would never have been guessed by any of them. He just happened at the Grand Slam when you were watching. (laughs) And I threw the name out there just, you know, what the hell. Okay. I never thought for a second she'd be, hey, that's good. So Marlo is a tough guy. Is he like his father, Gros? Is he like Dave Grosby, the Gros that I know? He's in your face. He's right in your face. Like a, absolutely, Mitchie. He, he's absolutely in your face. He's much tougher than he than he looks or should be. Uh, but it's great. It's actually great. Ladies and gentlemen, he is the Graz, Dave Grosby, and he's in for Hot Shot Scott, who's out this week. He's always got an excuse. This time it's camping, Graz. He's out camping with his camping. daughter. He's camping. I don't even know what camping is. Have you ever gone camping, Graz? What do you think, a monster here? I mean, a, a, an outdoor? No, I've never gone camping. Roughing it for me is, uh, is you know, no room service in a hotel. That, that's roughing it. There you go. So Hotshot is out camping. That means Graz is in for episode 252. And I have to get a couple of wow. things out of the way in our the warm-up segment, the tease. The open to the open? Yeah, the open to the open, the warm-up. I got to get a couple of things, check a few boxes out for you. Before we start, Graz, I want to tell the story to our audience of just before coming to Austin, Texas, to see the University of Texas with my son. My wife, Sharon, handed me something that you don't get handed much anymore, which is a handwritten envelope. When was the last time, Graz, you received a handwritten 
envelope in the mail, in the old way, the mail. When was the last one? Right, snail, snail mail. No. Um, I honestly can't remember. Okay. Well, I, I, got, can't remember. I got one the other day just before coming to Austin. Sharon said, hey, look at this. And I, and I looked at it, and my name was written. I opened it up, and there was a little sticky in there that said, thanks for having me on. Go Dolphins. And it was stuck to a $20 ticket at 25 to 1, or it was the other way around. I think it was a $20 ticket at 25 to 1 on the Miami Dolphins to win the Super Bowl. And I have the ticket with me in Austin. And where did it come from? Handwritten from the Gras. Now, I ask you, how many people on this earth right now can say they have received a wagering ticket handwritten from the Gras and the Emerald Queen Casino? Only you, Mitchie. <laughs> Only you. And, you know, uh, you know, I have Parkinson's, as, as everyone knows. So it took me a lot of stops and starts to do that. <laughs> But that that became a that became just a grim march of death. I, I must have must have done it twenty or thirty times to actually scrawl that out because Parkinson's can mess with your writing a little bit. So it took I put a ton of effort into it for you, Mitch. Oh, you're talking about because the I writing. believe in that personal touch. You're talking about the writing. You're not talking about how difficult it was for you to get to the betting window. I thought you were talking about. Oh how, no, no, no. It's it was the writing of the note that was the problem, right? It was simply trying to write the note, write your write your address, big enough letters. I thought for a second when I mailed it, I said, you know what? He's going to think this is from a psycho. No, I'm not. And he's not even going to open it. <laughs> so I put Graz in return address thing. So if, uh, I don't know if people still did that on envelopes or not. But I did do that. And um, yes, I do appreciate being on. I was at the Emerald Queen playing what you say is the Bob Levy yes. method. But what I've always called the Mitch Levy method of, yeah. of craps. Yes. Modified Mitch Levy is what I call it. Okay. Because I take a few chances that you don't take. Right. <laughs> and had some success and figured to share the wealth. Uh, so go fish. Yes. A lot there to unpack. First of all, I'd say, <laughs> first of all, I'd say, since Dan Marino retired, after coming out here and beating the Seahawks in a playoff game and then going to Jacksonville and losing like 76 to 13 <laughs> to Mark Brunel, that was his last game. He never played after that. I have been asking myself, as have all Dolphins fans throughout the world, what do we got to do to have a decent football team? I mean, literally, it's going on, I don't know, 20 years, 25, I don't know how many years it is. It's unbelievable. 15 yeah. or 20 years. And I've been wondering, have I done something wrong? Have Dolphin fans together not done something right to be able to at least have a fun, exciting, competitive year? And it dawned on me just the other day, what's going to break the slide? And that is, I've never had a ticket from the Gras on the Dolphins at 25 to 1. That's been the secret sauce that's been missing all these years. And if they go and do something special, it's going to be always because of Dave Grosby. That's what I say. I agree. If, it, if this happens, it's all because of me. And don't forget that. I, I will never forget it, Grosby. Now, do I, do I owe you a commission if this thing hits and we're celebrating no. a Super Bowl no, title? No. $525 no, 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 no. comes my way, Gross. That's right. That's right. Spend it wisely. By that, I mean spend it foolishly. Okay. And I don't have to cut you in on anything? Nothing? No, of course not. <laughs> okay. Of course not. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Mitch Unfiltered is available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe and rate us, please, on Apple. This is the 252nd 
show, free show. If you throw in all the Patreon shows, it's well over a thousand shows now. We ask you to consider becoming a Mitch Unfiltered patron at $5 a month and have access to all of our shorter shows made possible by the patron subscribers at $5 a month. You'll hear voices every week like Rick Neuheisel, Randy Mueller, Danny O'Neill, Peter King, Jason Lockenfora, Matt Miklas, Joe Doyle, Jason Churchill, Seahawks No Table guys, the guys on the Seattle Kraken No Table. We're up to Graz about 13 or 14 regular contributors on Mitch Unfiltered after five years of doing this, and it's all thanks to the patrons at MitchUnfiltered.com. So it's got to be, what, $30, $40 a, a month or something like that? $5 a month. $5? $5 a month to become a patron. That's all we're asking for. I never want to sound like a PBS pledge drive, Graz, but uh, here we are. I feel like I should cut to the Frank Sinatra, Jerry Lewis conversation. <laughs> uh, MitchUnfiltered.com. Click on Become a Patron. Do so. At $5 a month, you'll have access to all the patron shows. And as I like to say every week, I say this with Hot Shot Scott, so I'll say it with you, Graz. If there's anybody listening who would love to hear the extra content that we do all week long between the Monday shows, but you can't swing the $5 a month, if you truly, genuinely can't do the $5 a month, the point is not to X you out. Just send me a note, Mitch at MitchUnfiltered.com. Tell me, hey, I can't do the $5 a month. I just can't at this stage of my life. And we'll make sure that everybody gets the content that wants it because the idea is not to ostracize Graz. We want to we want to bring people in, not send people away. Well, that is admirable, Mitch, because it doesn't <laughs> seem like much of a business model to me. But it's very, very admirable. It's it's why I like being on this show. You're a high caliber, <laughs> high quality person for taking care of your listeners in that way. I just want to know when we're going to get a guest appearance from Marlo. I want to hear from Marlo on, on Mitch Unfiltered. What do I got to do to hear from Marlo? Uh, give him about three or four more weeks so he can come up with a bark instead of a squeak, which is what he's doing now. The guests on this episode 252, the Mariners note table, Churchill, Doyle, and I will marvel over what has been one of the most mm -hmm. remarkable runs maybe we've ever seen in Mariners baseball. I mean, you're going back to the 115, 116 game season. We'll talk about it with Graz in, in segment number one. It's just been every time you think – You've seen the end of the run. It just keeps going and going and going. Brady Henderson, ESPN.com, Seahawks insider, on the roster decisions that face Pete Carroll and John Schneider as now they've played all three preseason games and we're counting you down to the opening day, the opening kickoff against the Rams. And Peter King, my longtime friend from Football Morning in America, is going to take us around the league with a look at all the stories that's going on in the National Football League Raws heading into the season. So a good show, a good group of guests, but a great co-host on Mitch Unfiltered, episode 252. It's a winning combination, Mitchie. It's a winning combination. <laughs> Episode 252 of Mitch Unfiltered with the Graz and three guests presented by the Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage. These are challenging times in the home financing world, no doubt, but that's when the better and more creative professionals stand out. Jordan Flowers and his Woodenville Cross Country team are a phone call away. 425-890-2957. Daniels Broiler and their Seattle Bourbon Bash on September the 16th. The gorgeous downtown location in the Hyatt 
at the Rick House Whiskey Bar, a collection of bourbon and whiskey and heavy appetizers. Tickets are still available. Danielsbroiler.com, world-class steakhouses. Evergreen Golf Call, tax advisors, certified financial planners, experienced portfolio managers working together to bring retirement, planning, taxes, and investments under one roof. Evergreengk.com, more than just a financial advisor. Evergreen is everything well. Zeke's Pizza, all the great things going on over there at Zeke's from the expansion east to Idaho down to Portland, the revamped mobile app, which makes home delivery as simple as ever. Download that new app. Give it a try. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. John Waterstrat, Fireside, Home Solutions. Fall and winter will be here before you know it. Start considering replacing that beaten up fireplace or add one outside like we did. Check out the newly remodeled Bellevue flagship location too. FiresideHomeSolutions.com. Episode 252. I'm ready. Are you? It starts right now. Unfiltered. It's not like you luck into that, like a, just a pedestrian player would have the 17 hits over four games. It happened to Julio Rodriguez for a reason. No disrespect to Ty France or J.P. Crawford, that it's not one of those guys. Right. Ted Williams didn't do it. <laughs> Unfiltered. We are now refocusing our efforts on winning the effing division. Mitch is Unfiltered. And now episode 252 is officially underway. The last section was the warm-up section. Hotshot Scott is out camping, so he's not with us on this episode 252, but filling in admirably my old friend, the man who nicknamed me Mitchie the Kid the first time he ever laid eyes on me in 1995 at Duke's down on Queen Anne. Here's Dave Grosby with us. Mitchie, I want to spend just a second here, and I appreciate, as always, being with you, uh, talking about something that um, is important for me, and, and I know that your family's been touched by Parkinson's disease as well. It's our um, biggest fundraiser of the year. It's the Optimism Walk, uh, APDA in the Northwest. It's 2023 is coming up on September the 30th. Okay. And uh, what we do is just uh, you know use this to, to make donations and, and try and build up some money for hopefully finding a cure for, for Parkinson's, and, and a lot has been done, and, and they're coming closer in some ways, but it's all about about research, it's all about coming up with money for research, and and I'm hosting a team, and and I would appreciate if some of your listeners feel a little generous and, and would like to uh, would like to donate to it. I'm gonna when when this comes out, I'll, I'll put a link on it where uh, where you can go to my page and, and make a donation um, to the Optimism Walk to benefit uh, APDA, the American Parkinson's Disease Association Northwest, and our Optimism Walk coming up at the end of uh, at the end of next month. So I appreciate the chance to to pitch a little bit, Mitch, and, sure. and I will uh, sure. I'll give everyone the link uh, on on Twitter and. And um, and I really appreciate everyone being involved. I've also got a, I've also got a Facebook page as well. Okay. So if you if you're on Facebook, you can, can just look it up uh, there. Very easy to find. And uh, in advance, I appreciate everyone for for helping out with their generosity. Graz, when were you diagnosed with Parkinson's? What do you remember about the uh, the message that you had Parkinson's? Well, it's it, it was um, about five years ago. It's a tough diagnosis to get, especially when when you had some experience with it. And my mother had it. Mm-hmm. And she had a really, really hard time with it. Not that everyone doesn't, but she was allergic to the medication. Oh. And as you know, there's really just one medication you could take for it. So it was really a very difficult deal for her. And um, Jim Marshall, uh, and we both know and and both knew before he had Parkinson's and when he got it here, you saw how that kind of slowed him down. And everyone has seen, you know, the, the most well-known examples of it and two real different cases, Muhammad Ali 
and Michael J. Fox. So knowing all of that, it was it was um, gives you pause. It, it makes you think. It makes you scared. All those things happen. But then, you know, you find out that, that it's, it's something you can live with. People do live with it. Terrible name, but they call it a boutique disease, which is it's different for everyone else. So, I mean, it was comforting for me to find out that I wasn't necessarily going to have the same journey that my mother had or, or the same journey that anyone else has. So in that sense, it's, it's sort of an individual thing, but it's also really growing fast, unfortunately, in neurological terms. I think it's the, it's the sad to say, the fastest growing one out there. So um, it was it was definitely it was definitely something that gave me pause, but it is something that I've been able to live with and, and will continue to live with as long as I can. What kind of medical improvements have they made over the five years that you've had Parkinson's Graz? And how are you doing five years later after the diagnosis? Well, um, for me, I'm probably in a similar spot to where I was in the first place. Um, I've had you know, the thing about Parkinson's is everyone is familiar with the with the motor difficulties, the, um, whether it's shaking or it's uh, involuntary movements, um, shuffling, talking slowly, all those things. Uh, and I have a little bit of the, the, the slow walking thing, shuffling a little bit, but I don't really have the others. I mean, I don't really shake or anything like that at this point. So uh, there's, there's a non-motor class though, which is, my God, it's like never ending. It, it's 50, 60 things. It's depression. Oh. It's urinary problems. It, it's constipation. It's it's all kinds of things that you would never associate with it, insomnia. So for me, that's basically been, the, the problem has been these other things. I'm not even on the maximum dose of the carbidopa, levodopa at this point. Dealing with the non-motor stuff for me, but um, you know, eventually that will change because it's, it's degenerative and it is for everyone involved with it. Uh, in the time that I've been, I've been involved with it and trying to raise funds, it, it, five years has, has gone by fairly quickly. And you know, in terms of, of new of new things happening, there there are some new experimental drug treatments that are happening. There have been some progress made, but but it's it's difficult because, like we said, it's it's an individual a different disease for every individual. Mm-hmm. So progress is slow on it, but um, there's a tremendous amount of research going into it. Michael J. Fox is, Just, you know, he's raised a billion dollars. I know, literally a billion dollars for this. Crazy. So, yeah. you know, that, that's been a huge huge yeah. asset to it, and. And, um, you know, hopefully a cure, which is what they're going for in this rather than a treatment, uh, is around the corner. And, and that'll be it'll be a great day when it happens. We'll help you link your team. The function is in late September. You said September 30th, 30th. And we wish you obviously all the very best, Graz. And we th- we're thrilled, thrilled to have you on Mitch Unfiltered as a co-host as we try to make the segue. I don't know how to segue from that. What you just talked about to this. Speaking but- of the Mariners. <laughs> How about that? Just cold shift. Speaking of the Mariners, uh, you know, I've had this debate on the old uh, morning show at KJR. You've probably talked about it not only on your radio shows, but with your buddies. There's two. I I look at the calendar, the sports calendar, and I say, gosh, there's two like month-long stretches for me that stand out as the glory of sports. My favorite has always been that that first week of March going into the first week of April, you get the college basketball conference tournaments. You know me and my longtime association with the Big East uh, tournament at Madison Square Garden. Then you get the NCAA mm-hmm. tournament. You've got the Masters in, in April. You've got opening day in Major League Baseball. And everybody, no matter where, what city, what baseball city you're in, is excited about Major League Baseball opening day. I've always said, gosh, Graz, there's nothing quite better than those three, four, five weeks 
in the sports calendar. But I got to tell you, maybe I just wasn't in a city that I'm in now or that you are in now, and I'll be back there this week. (laughs) You know, over the next four or five weeks, the beginning of college football season, the mm-hmm. beginning of the National Football League, the final stretch run, the last 25, 30 games of the Major League Baseball season. Now that I'm in a city where we've got the Seattle Seahawks, people are encouraged. Maybe they're not calling them Super Bowl front runners, but they're encouraged. They're a playoff team from a season ago, and most believe they're better this year than they were last year. You've got a University of Washington, what, top 10, top 8 preseason ranked team that's getting ready to go right now and a lot of people think could find themselves in the college football playoff at the end of the year and then if that's not enough the hottest team in any sport on the face of the earth that just doesn't want to ever lose a game I'm convinced that the Seattle Mariners Gras if they wanted to lose one if they decided as a group let's go out and kick this one on a Monday or Tuesday they'd still find a way to win by mistake the Seattle Mar- maybe I'm just I'm just jaded because I've never been in a city that has those three things happening at the same time and maybe you'll tell me that these four weeks are better than even the four weeks in March and April what say you Gross? well I don't think I've been in a city like that either Mitch <laughs> because it, I don't recall those three things being no nah, I don't think it's ever happened in the 30 years I've been here I mean, the, the Seahawks and the Mariners, you know, the Mariners were good, haven't been good that much. We're good in 95, and we're good from 95 to 2001. And the Seahawks really, you know, we're, we're starting to turn around by, by 2001 with Holmgren, but, you know, we're still five years away from their first Super Bowl, and by then the Mariners had, had ended their playoff run. The Huskies were really good when I first came to town, but the Seahawks were terrible. We had the Sonics, of course, in the middle of all that. So, I mean, that, that doesn't right. just lost. I think right. this might be the first year we've Crazy. had all, all those, those three things happening. It might be. It may just be. And you look at the uh, the Mariners, the showcase of those three, because the other two really haven't started yet. They're about to. I guess Washington this week, this weekend, starts their college right. football season. We even, even had a couple of college football games. I noticed that Notre Dame won, played a game, and USC played a game this past weekend. But here we are with the Mariners, Graz, and I've run out of adjectives. I, I, it's just unbelievable to me what I'm watching. I don't know what's left to say. They have now won 11 out of 12. They've won 19 out of 23. I remember a game, you may or may not remember this, Graz, but on a Friday night, I went back and I looked. It was June 30th. It was the last day of June, Graz. The Mariners played a Friday night game at Safeco Field. I remember distinctly sitting in my family room and watching this game. They were playing the Tampa Bay Rays. It was the first of a three-game series, and the Rays' ace was on the mound, Shane McClanahan. I remember it vividly as if it were an hour ago. Shane McClanahan's on the on the mound. The Mariners are scuffling. They're just coming off of a road trip. They're three games under 500, and somehow, some way, Graz, they get four runs in the first inning or first two innings against McClanahan. He hadn't done that all year. And we're starting to think as I'm watching the game, hey, maybe something good's going to happen. The Rays turn around, Graz, and score 15 runs in a row to beat the Mariners 15-4. to Now, if anybody in our audience remembers that game, that game, Graz, dropped the Mariners to, I believe, 38-42. and Mm-hmm. That was the last day of June, 2023. And we were at rock bottom. People were just 
Fire and service, fire DePoto, 15 runs at home after they stake him to a 4-0 lead. Well, starting July 1 and since, they have now played 50 games since that Friday night, Graz. They are 36-14. and 14. They are 22 games over 500 since that night. That's 720 baseball. And to put that in its proper perspective, 720 baseball over 50 games is a pace over the course of a year to win 117 games. That's how good. They have not only just been the best team in baseball, but they're on a 50-game pace that's better than their 116-game winning season. I mean, that's this is how incredible the turnaround has been. How do you describe it, and how do you explain it? Do you explain it? You can't explain it. I mean, I remember being on with you the last time, and you were you were talking about, you know, the Mariners need to trade one of their top starters to get an offensive player because they have no offense. No offense. And, you know, they, they've done this. The only deal they made, basically, was everyone thought was just losing their closer. But actually, the two guys they've gotten from Arizona have played great. Yes, they have. I mean, they've really stepped up and, and they've made big plays for them. And, you know, they had a couple of things happen. You know, we, we knew they needed another hitter. We didn't realize that they were already on the team, though. Julio has his amazing run, which he's still on. Yeah. But Cal Raleigh, the same thing, has been an incredible offensive stretch. And the, the much maligned at the time, Tio Hernandez, has also over the past month picked up his game as well. So it's, it's like they've added three offensive players they didn't have the first half of the season. And their pitching has remained as good as, as it was the first half of the season. But that doesn't explain the whole thing, though. I mean, they've got the best offensive team in baseball the best offensive team in baseball during that stretch you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, they were 27th or something like that before that. That's right. So, um, you know, they're getting there because of their offense. And, you know, it's Dylan Moore. These new guys uh, that, that are just have energized them to, to an extent. And, and, you know, there's also something very special about when you've got your superstar going. That's something that that does for the rest of the team, it seems to me. And, you know, Julio went on a heater that I've ever Edgar Martinez never did that, Mitch. We watched him here, the, you know, the best hitter I've ever seen, and he never went on a stretch like this over three games, four games. Uh, it's just remarkable to see. I mean, it's just incredible, really. You know, there were 10 games back on July the 19th. A month later, a couple of days ago, they went into first place. Yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. Let me go back and, and ask you about Julio. You talk about a a superstar putting the team on his back and everybody feeding off of him. Look, he had a great season for a rookie last year. He was the rookie of the year, and he had a great season. That all-star performance at Dodger Stadium, no one will soon forget, blossomed into one of the young faces in baseball. But it was, if you look at the year, based on the great players in the league, It was modest. It was a great rookie season. He was the best rookie in the game. But, you know, compared to whoever, Shohei or some of the great great players, it wasn't that. But now he goes on this stretch. And Mm -hmm. I have been walking around asking myself the question that I'll ask you. Do you think this is just, oh, a great player having a great stretch? Or do you think that this is the corner turn to him going from a really good rookie and a nice player, a very good player, into truly a Shohei Mike Trout, like next year. Does this mean anything for next year? Can we take this and say, oh my God, he's doing something that no one's ever done. Babe Ruth never did. Ted Williams never did. Stan Musial never did. Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, nobody ever did it. Joe DiMaggio. 
this must mean that next year he's not just going to be a a really good young player. He's going to be like a 275, 280, 285, 40, 45 home run, 120 RB. He's going to be truly one of the greats of the game, or is that overstepping it? Uh, you know, Mitchie, right now, this year, he's looking at, he's hitting, I think, 287 now. No, 278 now. Yeah, 278 now from, yeah. from where he was. Um, he's he might be a 30-30 guy this year. This is a very real possibility of that happening. Only Bobby Witt Jr. I was surprised is the only player that's gone 20-20, 20 home runs, 20 steals in his first two seasons. Julio's going to do that, and he may be a 30-30 player. Mm-hmm. Saying all that, boy, it's a lot of pressure to heap on a – how old is he, 22-year-old? 22, point, I think. 20, yeah, 20, 22 or 23, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, there's got to be a, a couple of hiccups to come. A lot of times it comes down to injuries or whatnot. But, mm-hmm. you know, we have seen this show before. We saw it from Alex Rodriguez. We saw it from Ken Griffey Jr. We did. Um, we, we saw two of, the, two of the very best players ever. And they didn't start this fast. They, they were pretty close to it, but they didn't start this fast. So um, from what I've, what I've seen, I don't see anything that tells me that this guy is, is a fluke. There's nothing that's telling me that, that he is just a, a product of luck. None of that has been the case for him. He, you know, he's been was handed a big contract and has responded to it after having a, a tough first half, after hearing it from, from some people. Right. So yeah. he's dealt with some adversity. I mean, you look at, you hate to, to you know, kick Gerald Kelnick when he's down, but you look how he has handled it when, when he had the pressure on him and how Julio has handled it when he had the pressure on him. And it's just, uh, it's a remarkable thing to see. So I, I think, Mitch, we're, we're looking at another great player here. And I think that, yes, I think we'll continue to see exponential leaps over the next couple of years. So... Mitch Levy can't do any segment with all cherries and nuts. I've got to give you a butt somewhere. I mean, it can't be perfect. The segment can't. I'm too skeptical. I'm too cynical just to do a rosy, rosy segment on the Mariners. I got to heap a little bit of reality in, which is the bullpen. They went out and traded Paul Seawald, and they decided, okay, these two guys in Brash and Munoz We've seen them in the seventh. We've seen them in the eighth. They've got incredible velocity and stuff and movement. Why won't they work in the ninth? And I'm, I always remember fondly, even though he doesn't, I always remember joking with a guy named Jeff Nelson. You remember Nelly, and you remember the years that Nelly was having in 01 and 02 and 00. He was the best, the quintessential eighth inning setup guy. He was virtually unhittable in the eighth. And then the Mariners would go through a problem. Somebody would get hurt. Somebody would struggle. A Brandon League or somebody like that. uh, You know, whoever it was. Kazuhiro Sasaki. Whoever it was. And you remember, every once in a while Lou would put, or whoever was the manager, would put Jeff Nelson in the ninth. Jeff Nelson the man with no ERA. And what would immediately happen when he pitched the ninth? Walks. Walks. Hits. Hits. He wasn't the same pitcher. For whatever nope. reason, he could, and he hated me bringing that up on the show. He used to come in grumbling to KJR because I would bring that up. He was not the same pitcher in the ninth. And I think, and I know people are going to get pissy with me on this, I don't see where Andres Munoz or Matt Brash are the same pitcher in the ninth. There's a mentality. There's something that I can't put my finger on. They are clearly not the same pitchers when they're asked to close a close game than they are to set up the closer in the seventh and eighth inning. And I think at the end of the day, when we're crying on each other's shoulders about the Mariners being eliminated in the postseason, whenever that happens, World Series, wherever that happens, it's going to be because they're giving up leads in the eighth and ninth inning. 
Well, I mean, think about what you say. You can also look at it the other way around. How many closers have you seen come into games with a four-run lead and not be eligible for the save and be terrible? Yes, yes. I mean, there is something to that mentality of it. I, I, I'd say this to be a little, give it a little bit of another spin. Okay. Is these guys, you're right, they haven't done it yet, but they might be able to do it. I mean, I'm not ready to close the door on them and say that these are guys that can't close. You know, and you're right, it's not just great stuff. You've got to have you got to have whatever it is up there. Yeah. Whatever you got to turn on there to make it happen and we haven't seen it yet. But it doesn't mean we won't see it. I don't think of these guys as, as guys who are, who are so set in what their roles are. Like Jeff Nelson was so set in his role, was so perfect as a setup guy. Like Arthur Rhodes. Arthur Rhodes was a guy who closed, but was much better as a setup guy. Mm-hmm. Much better. Mm-hmm. I don't think Brash and and Munoz have been around long enough that, that we can d- define them that way. So I still think that they've got an opportunity to be the guys, but um, you know, nothing's going to substitute for it when you're the closer. You either are or you aren't. And, you know, what they've got to show is, is a lot of toughness for the times that they're not, you know, and not not lose their confidence when they don't pitch well. And we're kind of in, in that right now. So you may be right. That may have been the, the biggest um, the biggest risk they took by not adding a, another closer. We'll see. I mean, these guys are not 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 set enough, Mitch, that you can you can say safely that well, these okay. guys can't close. OK. Whereas okay. you could say with Jeff Nelson, he can't close. Well, I, I don't want I don't want people to say, OK, what Mitch is saying is that they shouldn't trade Paul Seawald. Because the truth of the matter is, I thought Seawald was on borrowed time, and maybe that's just, I'm just a negative Nelly. I, I, I didn't think that the trade of Paul Seawald was necessarily a bad thing, because I don't know that he's the answer in the ninth. But uh, these two guys have really, it's, it's amazing that they've been able to win as many games as they have, because, uh, boy, these guys, it's not just a job, it's an adventure in the ninth watching these guys. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see if one or both of them will step up and become that closer. The other guy will be in the eighth inning and they can get in some sort of a rhythm, Graz, where they can close out close games. Because ultimately, if they can't do it, and I, I hope you're right, maybe they will be able to do it. But ultimately, if they can't do it, that's the end. They're not going to be able we to fi- get to where they go, where they want to go. We find Norm Charlton somewhere? Yeah, find Norm Charlton somewhere. <laughs> he came in the twice sheriff? and yeah. was the man. Yeah. I'll end this segment because I just went to the hardy-har-har portion of the Mariners I'll end this segment before the guests, and we'll come back and we'll talk about the Seahawks and the Huskies in our other stuff Mm -hmm. segment. We'll use that for that. I just want to remind everybody something that's fun about the Mariners' run. Because, you know, this is the, what, second or third year of the expanded baseball playoff format. Everybody knows by now, because we've been focused on wild cards for the last two years, that there are three wild cards. But what you might not remember about the playoffs, Graz, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you don't, I'm going to remind you of something. That in the American League and the National League, there are six teams that make the playoffs. The three division winners and the three wild card teams. So six Mm -hmm. teams in each league make the playoffs. Don't forget or be advised that seeds number one and two the top two divisional winners, Graz, get a bye in the mm-hmm. first round. And then mm-hmm. the third divisional winner plays number six, the third wild card, and the top wild card plays the second wild card. I bring that up just because I'm here to tell you that if you look at the, right. at the standings, it appears as if that the winner of the West, whoever that is, Texas, Houston, Seattle, the winner of the West is going to probably have the second best record of division winners. The winner of the East, the Baltimore Orioles, if they stay on top, they're six, seven, eight games clear. 
they should have the number one seed. And the other division, the Central, where Minnesota is leading, they're going to be, unless something strange happens, below the record of the AL West crown. So while you're cheering for the Mariners to win the AL West crown, just know what's on the line here. Two things. Number one, win the West and you will likely be a bye team in the first round of the playoffs, which I can't even believe I'm saying that about the Seattle Mariners. (laughs) That's number one. And then number two is, the obvious is, you get the winner of one of the other series and you get the home field advantage three out of the five games, the best of five divisional playoff round in the following round. So that's what's on the line if the Mariners can somehow outduke the Texas Rangers, outduke the Houston Astros, and win the American League West. Those are some pretty good perks, don't you think? No kidding. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, especially having that time off. Uh, it's, oh. just, it's just gigantic. And uh, you're absolutely right. Minnesota, no matter what they do, I mean, they're not going to be able to catch it. Whoever wins the West, because the whoever wins the West is going to have to play good baseball. You got two other teams involved out there, so right, right. absolutely right, Mitch. It, it would be a huge, huge thing. And like you said, if I had brought this up a month ago, you never would have had me on the air again. <laughs> you never would have let me do the show again. Are we on Ross the air? Has gone over the end. I don't know. He's that lost his mind. I don't know that you can count what we're doing. Are we on the air right now? I don't think we are <laughs> on the air right now. I think we're whatever we're doing right now. <laughs> Let's do three guests on episode 252. And then Graz and I and the other stuff are going to talk about the Seahawks counting them down to the Rams game and the opener and a little on the Huskies as well, how encouraged we are. Could they find themselves somehow, some way in the last year of the Pac-12 as we know it in the college football playoff? That'll be in the other stuff segment. Hey, look who it is. Lindsay Schwartz, Daniel's Broiler, my favorite steakhouse during the summer and any time of year. How are you, Lindsay? How's everything at Daniel's Broiler? Hey, Mitch, doing great. Yeah, it's summertime. We've been so fortunate to have such beautiful weather, have a beautiful summer, July, August. That means we get to open all the decks and patios. Busy, busy, busy. So let's keep up this great weather. What I can tell you is that when my buddy, old friend Mark Kalkavecchia comes to town the golfer for the Boeing Classic. He's not even in SeaTac Air. I think he's still on the plane when he texts me, hey, can you help me out with Daniel's broiler? Can you help me out with Daniel's broiler? It's a favorite of the golfers that come for the Boeing Classic, isn't it? It really is. A few years ago when Jerry Kelly won, he came into Daniel's to celebrate afterwards, and I was there and saw him and talked to him a little bit. And uh, yeah, I think the word is out. That's the place to go if you win the tournament. Too bad I didn't teach you a little about the game of golf while he was there. Did you meet him? Did he no tips? Oh God, that yeah, <laughs> I, that would be a full time job. He already has a job. I don't, I don't think he has time for that. Uh, all right, last time you were on, you talked desserts. I want to focus on appetizers this time around. It's a little controversial in the way that. I never want to eat too much before the steak arrives, but you have such good appetizers. I'm torn on that. Yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, we we try to keep them light, so we make that decision easy for you. We don't want to fill you up on the appetizers, but we just try to make them delicious, and I think we've done that. I know that. I know you've talked about the scallops, how you love that one. I love the scallops. Yeah, the bacon-wrapped scallops. Yes. They're so good. I think it's something unique that we do. We, We pick the big jumbo scallops. We wrap them in bacon. We put them on the broiler. It's just a really unique flavor. You get the Sambuca butter sauce, serve it on top of crostini. You got good taste. Those are really, really good. How about some of the other appetizers? I know from experience the popcorn shrimp has gone from a 
a Levy boys favorite as their main course to now they just get a couple of orders before their steaks as they eat me out of house and home. What about some of the other appetizers? Yeah, I mean, the popcorn shrimp are awesome. I think really what makes them is the sauce. It comes with two sauces, the yes. sriracha aioli, which is spicy and delicious, and the lemon aioli is really, really good. And yeah, I've told you before, my kids love that too. Even even now they're grown up, they still got to have it. And your favorite is the crab leg? Yeah, I like the crab legs. I mean, the cool thing about it is if you love crab like I do, but you don't like to have to work for it and crack the crab and wear a bib, they're already shelled. We, we take the, the crab legs out of the shell, the big fry leg, which which is the biggest leg on a crab. Right. And uh, we serve that in a Dijon mustard sauce. Yeah, that's been my favorite. I love that so one. So I guess the uh, the moral to the story is, even if you're not in the mood for a big giant steak, you can go to Daniel's, have a drink, and feast on the appetizers and enjoy some of the great views of the Pacific Northwest. We love Daniel's Broiler. World-class steakhouses. Unfiltered. Seattle Mariners, no table. Here's Julio to lead things off. Swung on, crushed left field. This is so far gone. It is near the train track. See you later. Jason Churchill. I'm going to say he's going to hit 280 or better. He's going to hit two home runs. One of them specifically against Brady Singer on Friday night. Here's a high. Jolton Joe Doyle. Over the next six games, Julio Rodriguez is go- this is not going to be sexy. He is going to draw eight walks. Pitcher, here's a drive deep to left. Headed for the pen. Goodbye, Julio. Is under 250 too trunky? No, I don't think so. That is beautiful. Well, 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 this Mariners run has rendered many of us speechless. My hand is raised. So it's a damn good thing that I've got two guys that are never without words. And we've even rescued one of them from the scoreboard in the Green Monster at Fenway Park Church. I've run out of adjectives. You're a wordsmith. Give us the best adjective that you can describe this, what, 36-14 and 14 run over the last 50 games. Uh, wow would be the, the best word I can come up with. Okay. I mean, nobody, like, I, I think most of us, or at least a decent portion of us thought, this team is better than the win to lose to, you know, a right around 500, then fall. I think we all thought they were better than this. But baseball, you can't predict baseball like this, like to, to, to be on the streak that they're on to actually play good baseball, too. This has happened for too long now. The sample size is far too big at this point to say, well, it's just a little streak and, and they're going to have some battles. I think there are a lot of things to point to to suggest a, a decent portion of this is sustainable. Like I'm not saying they're going to go out and score six, seven runs a night the rest of the year, and that's just who they are. But this clearly is a different offense. The pitching is still there. They're playing good baseball. They're obviously feeling good. They're winning on the road. They're winning at home. They're beating lefties. They're beating righties. They're winning late games. They're scoring early in games. 
I think a good portion of this is sustainable. That makes it exciting. Yeah, nobody's talking enough about the pitching. Like, yeah, we're we're giving all the credit to the offense, and and for good reason. Like, they're scoring seven and a half runs a game. They're hitting homers. Teo's getting hot. Suarez, Julio, the whole nine yards. Right. That's that's yeah. what's catching the headlines. Yeah, yeah. But Luis Castillo over the last four starts carving through lineups. George Kirby is just shredding every team that he gets in front of. And yeah, while Bryce Miller and Brian Wu and you know some of these other guys are are kind of up and down, they're being rescued by the offense. So when everything is clicking like it's clicking right now, this team is one J.P. Crawford throwing, we'll call it an error, off of Tim Anderson's head away from a 12-game winning streak. There's no way anybody could have seen this coming. It's been a lot of fun to watch. And sometimes I I think back to 2022 and I think back to that 14-game winning streak going into the playoff or into the all-star game and I think how was I feeling back then I got a hard time believing I was feeling as hot as I am right now it's beautiful baseball to watch church to Joe's point we're all crediting the offense because we've seen the Mariners pitching do what they do and we've seen it all year long and they just sustained it and now the offense has come along the offensive numbers I did this going into Sunday's finale against the Royals in which the Mariners swept the series and took the American League West lead by themselves. Going into that game, Church, in the 13 previous games, 13, we're going back to the original Royals series, I believe, but 13 games going into the Sunday game. They had scored 93 runs. They were 146 for 446 at the plate. That's a team average over 12, 13 games of 327. What teams hit 327 over 12 or 13 games? Certainly not the one that was ranked 27th going into the All-Star break. So uh, it's just, it's unbelievable. And it really feels like, even though maybe this is oversimplification, Church, that the Julio thing, that Julio stretch just kick this whole team into another gear. I certainly think that's a part of it. That might be the biggest factor here, but I think lengthening the lineup, getting more quality at bats out of more spots in the lineup on a more consistent basis is enormous. Uh, they were essentially asking the top six guys in the lineup to carry the load for nine places. That That's not going to work over the long haul. That's why you're going to be really streaky and run scored. Your, your ceiling's going to be higher. Your floor is going to be lower. You're going to get shut out a lot. You're going to lose three to one a lot, but then every once in a while you're going to score nine runs and everybody feels great great for 18 hours right. and then you're back to really struggling in situations now you know and none of these guys are world beaters but you're getting contributions from josh rojas you're getting contributions from dom canzone you're getting contributions from Cade marlowe even mike ford and you're getting more of this consistency and i just think you get an extra couple of, when you have nine legitimate major league quality bats in your lineup even yeah. two three four of them aren't that great yeah you're going to score more runs it's going to kind of unlock the potential of the top five or six in the order and i think that's a big part of it as well you know you mentioned josh rojas and i'm glad that you did in that little diatribe amongst other guys teo has been on complete fire we'll talk about him in a second but rojas is a great example for me he's in microcosm What's happening with this lineup, Joe? Going into Sunday's game, Rojas hitting in the nine hole, 12 of 27, 444 over six games, and three home runs. When you start getting that from your number nine hitter, your second baseman, 
What were we getting all year from the second baseman that's no longer on this team that they acquired during the offseason? It wasn't 444 over six games. It wasn't three home runs. So, yeah, I like the fact that he circled, that Church circled Rojas. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, what'd you get from Colton Wong? I mean, I, home runs aren't everything, but what'd you get from Colton Wong over three months? Two home runs? Does Rojas have three home runs in yeah. three weeks? Yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, Not I was looking weeks. at this before yeah. the show. Rojas has been a top 30 hitter in the American League since he was acquired by Seattle. That's pretty crazy. He's been worth 0.6 F4. But to your guys' point, uh, kind of stretching that lineup out, making sure that it's one guy after another. Julio has been the best hitter in baseball since uh, since the beginning of July. Eugenio Suarez is top 25. Teo has been top 12. Cal Raleigh has been top 10. Uh, even Ty France, I believe, is in the top 50. So he's even picked it up. When you have that sort of production and when there is a relentless chain of events, hitter after hitter after hitter, they're walking, they're hitting home runs. It's almost impossible to pitch to this team because they are good against lefties. They are good against righties. And when you throw a a pitching rotation out there like Kansas City or like quad A arms out there, they're going to ambush them. And they've really done that for the better part of four or five weeks. Church Teo had another home run on Sunday That's five home runs over his last 55 at-bats. And in those, let's say, 51 at-bats going into Sunday's game, he was 21 of 51. He was hitting 415, Teo Hernandez, going into Sunday's game in his last 51 at-bats. Now, is that... Is that Julio? Is that that protection in the lineup? Is that him just getting comfortable? Is it the warm weather? What is it about Teo Hernandez that now, you know, a month ago, two months ago, the three of us were talking about how Hernandez is probably not even going to be on this team next year. Maybe they want to move him because he's not even going to be on the team next year. I think there's a lot of people in Mariner land that would have a different opinion about that topic nowadays. Yeah, 336 coming into Sunday's game against the uh, against the Royals. If you're a WRC Plus fan, it's over a buck 50 over the last month, obviously hitting with power. I see Teoscar Hernandez as a bit of a microcosm of the entire Mariners lineup. If you can get one extra pitch to hit that you weren't getting before, it makes an astronomical difference. It can be the difference between a guy hitting a buck 88 with a 40% strikeout rate over a stretch and hitting 300 with power. I mean, you, and then when you get that pitch, not missing it, I think that was part of Julio's issue too. Mm-hmm. He was missing some pitches, getting under some fastballs and fouling them off or popping them up instead of driving them. And I think Teoscar Hernandez is doing that now as well and using the whole field, using the middle of the field a little more. That's really important for, for both Julio and Teoscar Hernandez. He's been a really good hitter. He's still not drawing a lot of walks, but that's never really been his things. He's still striking out 25, 26% of the time, but that's better than the 32, 34, 36% we've seen at other stretches of the season. He's just part of the middle of that order that as long as you have the Julios and the Crawfords and the Francis around him, he's going to continue to produce. He's still going to continue to be somewhat streaky, but he's on a good one right now. He is going to be an enigmatic free agent. Uh, Maybe that's not the best word, but in such a light free agent class, he seems to enjoy playing in Seattle. He seems to enjoy playing around Julio Rodriguez and playing around Luis Castillo. He's clearly having fun with those guys in the dugout. He seems like a good fit for this roster. Jason, you and I were, were talking in another channel about, you know, do you offer, offer this guy $20 million one year qualifying offer? Well, with his defensive limitation, I'm not sure if that is necessarily money well spent, but I do think there's going to be mutual 
interest between Seattle and Teo to come back on maybe a three-year deal, something like a $48 million. You look at like the Mitch Hanniger contract. You look at the Marcelo Zuna contract a couple of years ago. I think it makes sense to bring this guy back, uh, but I would be surprised if Teo didn't kind of explore the waters in such a weak class. So what happens from here? It's my favorite question that I ask you guys all, all the time. Play Vegas odds maker if I made it even money. They're now in the lead as we record this for the free episode, by the way, of Mitch Unfiltered. These three guys, or these two guys and me, the three of us, are together every week for patrons. We encourage all of you to become a patron and hear us as the Mariners go down the stretch. Go to MitchUnfiltered.com, become a patron, and you'll hear us every single week. My question is, they're now in first place by themselves Do we make them even money? Do we make them the favorite? Do we make them still an underdog to be the AL West champions, not to be a playoff team, to be an AL West champion? And as you're thinking about that, Church, I've done this on the other shows, on the other podcasts on Mitch Unfiltered. I can't help but remember and reminisce about a game that you guys will remember because you watch all the games. Some of the guys that I'm with don't watch all the games. June 30th. A Friday night game against the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Or not the Devil Rays anymore. The Tampa Bay Rays. Shane McClanahan was on the mound here at T-Mobile Park for the Rays on that Friday night. It was the beginning of a three-game series. The Mariners were really scuffling. They had just come back off the road. And they got to McClanahan for four runs, I think, in the first inning. If not the first inning, the first two innings. And we thought, okay, they're doing something that nobody in the American League does. Get to Shane McClanahan early. And what happened after they took a 4-0 lead? They gave up 15 unanswered runs. Mike Ford ended up on the mound. And the Mariners fell to 38-42, four games under 500, in a 15-4 blasting in front of the, the home crowd. And everybody was swirling, and myself included. I'm not pointing fingers. Like, this is the low point. They've got to make change. This is not working. The Mariners are what they are. And that was the moment because that's the last day of June. Since then, Church, 50 games they've played. They are 36 and 14 since the 15 to 4 loss to the Rays that night. They're playing 720 baseball. Which, to put it in its proper perspective, over the course of a year, that's a 117 or 118 win season. <laughs> they are playing 720 baseball over the 50 games. So, with all of that as a backdrop, what now? Do we make them the favorite to win the West? The Rangers can't get out of their own way. I think they've lost 9 of 10 or something like that. Houston still is... You know, win a couple, lose a couple, win a couple, lose a couple. And here are the Mariners just jetting by everybody. Yeah, I would put Seattle as the favorite to win the West right now. You have a one-game cushion. Right now, it doesn't look like you're going to be able to win a tiebreaker with Texas. But you have the tiebreaker against Houston. So if you're out there rooting and one of the, and they're playing each other, right. you probably root for the Astros in this case. Uh, so you're not tied with the Rangers when it all comes out, but you're going to get plenty of opportunities to play the Texas Rangers in September to kind of settle this on the field. But I would make Seattle the the ever so slight favorite right now. They're playing better. They have a better pitching staff in general. They have a significantly better bullpen. And as we sit here, <laughs> as we sit here coming out of the weekend, the Texas Rangers bullpen is an absolute shambles, not just in terms of performance, but they had to go, what, 13 innings against the Minnesota Twins. Yep. Uh, and there's no day off. 
They there's no doubt they go right into another series to, to continue playing. And again, that's not a good bullpen to begin with. And this is the time of year where starters tend to wear down a little bit and you tend to start needing your bullpen a little bit more. And they don't have a bunch of two inning guys down there. They're really kind of leaning on two or three guys in the clutch, kind of like what Seattle's been doing the last couple of weeks. If I'm out there betting, if I'm yeah. laying money on this. Yeah. I'm, I'm betting on Seattle before I bet on Texas uh, and Houston's probably second for me. Yeah. I think Texas is falling apart. I think that's literally we're watching them fall apart. And I think there's a chance they end up not making the postseason. At wow. All. And church to underscore, you're not only making them a favorite, but you're not even looking at the, the schedule. They play the last seven games of the season. The Mariners do at home against both Texas and Houston, and that's after going to Texas for three. So the last 10 games of the season, I believe seven of them are against Texas and three of them are against Houston, and seven of the 10 are home at T-Mobile Park. Joe? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's down to Seattle and Houston. I agree. Texas does seem to be falling apart. Their pitch mm. seems to be falling apart. But I have to ask, are we making these wagers with lead foot bottom of the river on the line? I got to <laughs> call back to like, what's on the line here, because uh, I don't want to put out anything uh, without knowing uh, if I'm going to be floating down the yeah. bottom of a river. Anyways, well, no, no, you are gonna, um, you're floating down the bottom of the river when you're the odds maker. If you make the wrong odds <laughs> and you and your boss gets killed and the casino gets killed, that's when you, so this is on you. end up on the bo- this, yeah, this is, is on, on me. You. This is on me. That's so right. let me say this. Yeah, I said this during last week's show. I do think I, I just I, I have a feeling that the division is going to be potentially won or lost over the next 12 games. You get Oakland, you get Cincinnati, you get the Mets, you get more opportunities to win winnable games. I know it's a tough road trip, but this is going to be an opportunity for Seattle to maybe distance itself a little bit from Houston, distance itself a little bit from uh, from the Rangers. They're going to be playing the AL East. That's always a tough, heated matchup. Um, so I think if Seattle can go into those final 10 games of the season with so many of those at T-Mobile Park, if they can have a two-game lead on Houston with that week and a half stretch to go, I think Seattle's going to be the favorite. And I think as you look at it today with their pitching, it's hard to vote against them. Guys, I, I know that they- They are on absolute fire and they can't get out of the way of wins. And we just talked about 36 of their last 50, but it's not perfect. And there is still a concern that everyone is talking about. So let's make the three of us talk about it a little bit here. And that is despite Sunday's dominant looking Andres Munoz in the, in the ninth, this has been a real wild ride in the ninth for the Mariners. And Munoz has not looked the same until Sunday, Brash, when placed in the ninth inning, has been far less effective than he's been in the seventh and the eighth. You've got service looking for ninth inning answers. He hasn't tried Topa in the ninth, really. I'd like to actually, as a fan, see what that's all about. There is a certain mentality. There is a certain something, an intangible that I can't put my finger on, church, that makes a closer a great closer. And that just some guys with incredible stuff that are incredible setup guys, you place them in the ninth and it just feels like a whole different dynamic. They fall behind, they walk guys, the guys are on base, things that don't happen in the seventh and eighth. Where are you on the the closing stretch, the ninth inning relievers for the Mariners? Yeah, so I look at it differently and I think I share this with the team itself. Like if, if Andres Munoz is your guy and he is your guy until you find someone else that's better than him over the long haul, he's your dude. That doesn't mean you have to go to him every single time in every situation. But if the game is on the line, 
in the eighth inning with the middle of the order coming up. Munoz is not your ninth inning guy that day. He's the guy that's going to face two, three, four in the other team's lineup. Therefore, someone else has to cover the ninth inning because if you do it the other way around and, and Topa goes in there or, or Spire goes in there and gives up the lead or, or makes it a lot tighter than it needs to be. Now, what are you asking Andres Munoz to do? Something he shouldn't have been asked to do in the first place. So these guys are down there. They have roles and they're down. They're watching the scoreboard. They know the situation. They see the lineup. They could probably predict, you know, within a, a couple of percentage points of perfect when exactly they're going to go in the game. Like, I'm not pitching today because we're up three nothing. Thing, and it's the eighth inning. It's the bottom of the order. Munoz knows in that situation that ain't him, but he knows if he gets three to two, he needs to get up and start stretching because that's going to be him. That's really, really important. Not that you can't change and say, hey, Andres, we're going to sit you today. That happens all the time. But you need three guys back there, really, that are throwing the ball really well. And I think the three guys that are throwing the best right now, unfortunately, aren't the three guys you really, really want facing the middle of the order. It's really important to get Munoz going. And it's really important for Seattle to stick with him because he's legitimately their best shot to have a shut down ace reliever you can't stop going to him you have to go to him in those situations so we can work things out pitching him in the sixth inning to give him softer landings isn't helping him throw strikes in those tight situations in the eighth and ninth because inning. it's so, different joe i don't understand it i don't understand how the eighth and the ninth are that different but man since the beginning of baseball we talk a lot about it on our show because i like the kid jeff nelson who hated it when i used to bring it up <laughs> jeff nelson yeah. no one could get a hit off of jeff nelson in the eighth but as soon as Lou or somebody else threw him in the ninth because his closer wasn't available or hurt, Nelson was like an or he was like me. He was like me out there. He's like ordinary. He was getting hit all over the you place. You can't lose the game in the third quarter or the first quarter. That's why. That's why. You can't be <laughs> the reason yep. at that particular point to lose. You, you give up three runs in the seventh inning and you gave up the lead. Okay, that's bad. And this is going to look bad for you. And you feel bad. And you want to go out and perform. But you also have another inning or two yeah. to make up for that. You blow it in the night. That's all on you. It's pressure. Yeah, I'll, I'll address the elephant in the room. I, I don't think the Paul Seawald situation would have changed this too much. I mean, all these guys are due for bumps in the road. They're all due for regression at some point. I will say my, my only thing with the bullpen is, and Jason will probably laugh at this, I would definitely reserve Matt Brash for fireman like situations. There's two on, you're up by one, you need a strikeout. That's when I would save Matt Brash. I, I, I've noticed over the last year and change or whatever, when someone gets on and the temperature gets ratcheted up just a little bit, his heartbeat really starts to tick. And I don't see that as much when he's brought in with one out and two men on. He just kind of knows what the situation is. He knows what the role is. He doesn't kind of show that, oh, I've gotten myself into this mess. How am I going to get out of it? So I'd save him for situational type things where you only need one out. You only need two outs. Save him for the seventh inning. Save him for the eighth inning. I don't care. But at the end of the game, despite what happened today, I would probably still go with Spire, Topa, and Munoz. Hold on. Some, or some so what order you're like saying, that Joe, at the end. What you're saying, Joe, is that Matt Brash is good at cleaning up somebody else's mess. But boy, when it's his own mess, he's lost. That's pretty much what you're saying. I think that's exactly what it is. He just seems to get down on himself quicker than a lot of these other guys do. The game speeds up on him. Yeah, I watch Matt Brash and I feel the same way it seems like you do, Mitch. Like, I see the stuff. I get it. But when is that going to come to fruition? We have to forget that, to be honest with you. I, I think Joe's on to something. There are probably better situations for certain guys. And I don't know. I'm not sitting here pretending I know how Matt Brash ticks, what, what's going through his mind. The results are what te what's telling Joe that maybe this is the case. Maybe Maybe it does speed up on him. Maybe he does panic a little bit when he walks a guy, gets a guy at second base, and then he gives up a hit. Matt Brash does seem to, and Joe made this point <laughs> recently in another forum, that Matt Brash gets upset 
when he gives up a run, but he also gets upset when he gives up a hit and the ball wasn't hit hard. Ground yep. ball, a seeing eye single. He lets that get to him. This may be a little bit of the Jared Kelnick situation we had in years past, but he's got to learn. He's got to learn. Remember, Matt Brash, yes, he was a reliever when the Mariners got him. They turned him into a starter. Let him do that. Mm-hmm. Come Now he's transitioned back to the bullpen. So I'm not saying this is brand new to him, but pitching in a pennant race is brand new to all these guys. All right, for everybody who's a patron that knows of these guys from our patron shows, each and every week we do the, the Mariners no table with these guys, Churchill and Doyle. We have a little fun at the end of each segment where we ask our panel to project something, to go out on a limb on the Mariners. And then we grade them and we hand out medals the next week to see if anything happened. Anybody got it right over the uh, the, the previous seven days. Last week, of course, when we did the show, we had Julio in the midst of a streak unlike any player in the history of Major League Baseball. So we made a rule last week. We normally don't do this. We wanted all of us to project what the week for Julio was going to be like out on a limb. And here's what the guy said. Joe said he's going to walk eight times in the six games between the two shows. Now, Joe was out on a limb, but he was also out of luck because he didn't play the first two games for a rest day. And then I think he had a stomach bug. So he missed two games, which blew you out of the water. But you also said in terms of walk percentage, what did you say? 25, 30%, something like that? Yeah, it would like double it. I said something like 20, 25%. No, I don't think you said 20. Uh, I think you said 25 or 30. <laughs> I think, but you, you can soft sell it now. He did not walk as much as you needed him to walk for the gold medal. Church said that Julio, get this folks, Julio is going to hit somewhere between 280 and 700. That's what Church said. That's it's, super out on a limb right there. He's gonna he's gonna hit between 280 and 700 because he said he's gonna be good, not great. And I made him quantify what's great, and he said, "Well, 700's great, so I'll take 280 to 700." Well, six out of 15, 400 falls between 280 and 700. However, you added that he was going to hit a home run to lead off the game against Brady Singer and the Kansas City Royals, which didn't happen for two reasons. First of all, he didn't homer off of Brady Singer. And second of all, he didn't lead off the game because he's now hitting second. And I think J.P. Crawford is hitting first. But you did get the, the 400 because that does fall between 280 and 700. And Mitch said... He's coming back down to earth. He's like the golfer who shoots 59 and always follows it up the next round with 74, 75. You can't repeat it. And I said he was going to hit under 250 in the six games, and he hit 400. So I think by process of elimination, Joe is out, Mitch is out, and Mr. 280 to 700, I think, is the gold medal winner. I, I I don't know how to hand out the gold any other way than that. I mean, I crawled across the finish line, but it still counts, right? <laughs> I was last, but I was the only one that didn't get disqualified. That's what happened. That's this exactly needs right. to be said for Jason's sake. First pitch of the game, JP took Brady Singer, Yapo. So, oh, it was worth something. It wasn't the right hitter. It right? wasn't the right batter, it but wasn't he was the hitter. Something. Okay. He's paying right. someone. So, Church, what is the next week hold for the uh, the Mariners in terms of the schedule? So they have three at home against uh, the vaunted Oakland Athletics, and then they head out on the road after a day off Thursday and have three at the vaunted New York Mets. Okay. So six games against the A's and the Mets, 
And then what happens? Because we might not be on until the following week. What happens after the Mets series? Then they travel to Cincinnati for three against Noel V. Marte in the Cincinnati Reds. So let's which make is a the really out- interesting right. series. So let's make the out on a limb contest the nine games. Okay. And, the, and the next time the, the three of us will be together, we'll be strictly for patrons in nine games from right now. And then we'll ramp it up for the, uh, the stretch run. Church as the gold medal winner. Mr. 280 to 700. You want to say somebody else is going to hit between 280 and 700? Maybe you'll win another goal because the two of us will just knock it. Like the three Stooges, Joe and I will knock into one another. We'll fall down and you'll be the only guy standing. So what's going to happen? That's exactly what my my prediction is here. My my out on a limb is someone on the Mariners is going to hit between 280 and 700 over the nine-game stretch. (laughs) Uh, Would be big. Let me do something something team-wide as part of it. Um, I think Seattle is going to go six and three. Some might hear that and say, wait, they're playing Oakland, bad team, Mets, bad team. Cincinnati's a decent team, not a great team. You can't play 700 ball all year. You can't, you can't do that for, I'm just expecting some sort of dip in that winning percentage. And I'm going to 667 instead of 700 here over the next <laughs> nine years. But I think they're going to go six and three and I'm going to stay on the Julio train and say, he hits four home runs over those nine games. How does that sound? Six and three, and Julio hits at least four home runs. Okay. Joe Doyle, go out on a limb. Bombs. Go out on a limb. All right, so I'm going to be done with this before, I think, the end of the day, Tuesday. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I need to be Some might argue that you, were done with this, the that you were done with this when we first started the and competition. I've got, <laughs> I've got two golds that I can hang my hat on. Yeah. It's, it's August, yep. but that's fine. Okay. Uh, Bryce Miller has not gone six innings since June 24th. It's been over two months since Bryce Miller has gone six innings. He's going to go six innings. He's going to strike out eight this week. I believe no, against Oakland. All right. No so. run, no runs allowed on that? I don't think that's 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 pretty chunky. You know, could, could give, give up, up nine runs. He could give up four runs, and that's not good. I mean, I don't know. All right. I mean, it's been two months. The kid doesn't throw six innings. What can you say? It's a bad bet. That's all you it's got for us, Joe? Really? <laughs> Miller does go Wednesday. You just made fun Wednesday of me for not getting the gold. I want the gold. <laughs> well, I don't know that you're going to be qualified for the gold. You're kind of playing. The, that prediction puts you in like the, the second the second Have division. Have I been relegated? <laughs> <laughs> all right. I figure I, figure I got to do something creative. If there's a red series involved, don't I have to do like a Julio de la Cruz matchup don't we have to do something like that church you have in front of you who's pitching for the mariners in the three game who who would be likely to pitch for the mariners in that three game series i do as it sits right now it's george kirby bryce miller logan gilbert in that order remember what i did with the florida marlin guy that was hitting 400 i said he was going to do nothing against the mariners and then he went oh for the series Mm -hmm. i'm going to do something similar on de la cruz Against that that group, I'm going to say Dale, and I don't even know what he's hitting. So maybe you guys will call me trunky because I don't follow it all that closely. I say that De La Cruz hits under 200 in the series against the Seattle Mariners, and I'll throw another layer on that. I'll say that Julio out hits him average wise by 75 points or more in the series. So. De La Cruz is under 200 in the series against those three starters. And I'll say Julio out hits him in the series average wise by at least 75 points. That too trunky? 
Yes? No, no that's no, good. I, I okay. like it. That's pretty I like good. It. Okay. Yeah. It may not be right, but, you know, hey, that's the way it goes. Uh, yeah, I, know that, I know that game. <laughs> I think we all know that game. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're hearing the uh, Seattle Mariners no table for the first time, become a patron, MitchUnfiltered.com. And uh, once you become a Mitch Unfiltered patron, you get all the bonus content, including our visit, the three of our Three of us visit every single week for the patrons. This is on the free show, and we'll be back with the patrons next time around. Jason Churchill, the Mariners are alone in first place in the American League West. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. Appreciate it. And Joe Doyle, 36 out of 50, Joe. 720 baseball. That's a 118-game winning season. Over the course of 162. That's the local yokels, the Seattle Mariners. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Appointment television. (laughs) Hey, it's time for a little visit from Zeke's president, Dan Black. How's your summer been, Dan? I feel like you're somewhere different every time I reach out to you. It seems that way probably because I am a lot. The Black family's (laughs) fortunate to have a bunch of great family spots for the summer. And I have been in Seattle a lot, partly for work, but also my favorite thing this summer is that my neighborhood Little League is making a run to the Little League World Series. Ah, Northeast Seattle Little League and Shoei, huh? Yeah, no, I heard you had Shoei on, but you know that he's just riding off the coattails of all of his past (laughs) great Nestle coaches. So what they're doing is amazing. And sports can be such a great source of community pride and Here's a pizza guy that's going to plug another pizza place. We've all been down at Varlamos watching the games and, you know, the whole neighborhood's there and everybody's so proud and stuff. But, yeah, what an awesome thing. Listen, in your absence, I've talked a lot about the new Zeke's Pizza app, which makes delivery so easy from Zeke's. What's been the response, Dan? Um, The response has been good. All technology has its things and stuff, but when you just look at ratings and adoption, the new app has been a huge improvement over the old app. You know, the other thing that's been improved is just ordering straight online at zekespizza.com. So between the app and our online website, digital ordering's never been easier at Zeke's. The customer interfaces are really intuitive and easy to use and does the basic stuff like remember your past orders and stuff. So no, we feel like it's been a really good success. So football season is here and uh, you guys over at Zeke's love football season because football season kind of means pizza. What's Pigskin 10? We get excited for football season at Zeke's. Yeah, like you say, because, hey, we're football fans. But it is a great pizza season as well. And so you remember when we did March Madness, we did a promo called Hoops 10, which got you yeah. $10 off yeah. your order. And it was one of the most popular things we've ever done with customers and operators, Zeke's operators. And so we're going to do something similar for football season. And so, yeah, the code pigskin10 is going to be active all football season and on what we call football days. So on Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays, and Thursdays, all day, mm-hmm. pigskin10 will get you $10 off your Zeke's order. There's an order minimum of $30 after the discount, but it's good for delivery. It's good for pickup. It's good for in-house. If you're in-house, you just mention it to a crew member and they'll apply the discount. But yeah, no, Pigskin 10, it's going to be awesome. $10 off your order all football season on football days. That's great. Pigskin 10, enter it on the app or online, or if you go into the store, make sure you mention Pigskin 10 on a football day to your Zeke's Pizza representative. We love Zeke's Pizza homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Locked in the air to the end zone. Bobo! Touchdown! Kulak. Thompson will pull it in for a touchdown for Seattle. All righty, the curtain mercifully drops 
on another somewhat painful preseason. And now we wait. Brady Henderson, ESPN.com, Seahawks insider to help us get ready for the final roster adjustments this week. How are you, Brady? Doing great, Mitch. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. A Seahawks loss to the Packers. Whatever happened to the third preseason game being the most interesting one where guys play? Did they do away with that when they went to three preseason games? Uh, it looks like some teams did. Yeah, I mean, the Packers didn't. They, they played quite a few starters uh, in this game, actually, for quite a while into the game. But I think we're just seeing that teams are still trying to figure out what the best route to go in now that there's only three games. I know the Seahawks treat that pre-preseason mock game as sort of the first preseason game. But, um, you know, they didn't play too many starters other than, you know, Mike Jackson and Trey Brown who are vying to be starters, and I think that's why you saw them play quite a bit in this game. But uh, other than that, it was a lot of twos and threes. Is it my imagination, or did more Seahawks players this preseason not play at all than typical? I feel like I could list you seven, eight, nine guys that never saw the field. In the old days, old days, it used to be maybe a quarterback or a running back doesn't see the field, but everyone else gets a little bit of action before opening day. Have these NFL teams just gone the the way of preserving their health at the risk of guys being not ready on opening day? That could be. I, I think part of it, too, with the Seahawks is remember last year, they were still all the way through the preseason. They were still trying to settle a quarterback battle. And it's not like you can just put the two guys vying for the starting quarterback job out there with a, a bunch of backups because you're right. not going to get the best evaluation that way. So I think they might have played more starters last preseason than they otherwise would have because they were trying to get a true sense of how the quarterbacks are playing. As I watched from Austin, Texas on my phone, preseason game number three, The one thing that had me entertained about not seeing anybody play and not being interested in the game whatsoever was the thought of Brady Henderson having to give me the three things that he learned from game number three in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I was chuckling all day thinking, how is this guy going to come up with three things that will interest us from game number three? I I did it actually pretty easily. Now, again, I'm going to cheat a little bit. And some of these aren't takeaways specifically from this game. uh, The game was part of the takeaway. So the first one is that Jake Bobo is a baller. My God, you love the Jake Bobo story. Well, how, how could you not? I mean, look at what the guy's done. He's an undrafted rookie wide receiver with a remarkably slow 40 time. <laughs> Read about it on ESPN.com. I wrote a story earlier this week. I don't know, I don't know if you have the bell with you. You do have the bell. Thank you. Um, check it out on ESPN.com. I talked to him for a few minutes uh, earlier this week. There's some interesting context there on the 40 time. Look, I think he's faster than the 499, a little bit faster than the 49940 that he ran at UCLA's Pro Day. He told me that he's been clocked in the you know low four sevens, which is still really slow for a wide receiver. And yet the guy is making plays left and right. And I, I think we're past the point of wondering whether or not he's going to be on the roster. There's no real question in my mind not just because of the plays he's making, but you know because of what's happening elsewhere with Jackson Smith and Jigba coming off the wrist surgery. Derek Young is also hurt. It sounds like he, we're not totally sure on this, but uh, he left town to see if he needed surgery for a core muscle injury. So whether or not he had it, I don't know if he's going to be ready by week one. And I think Jake Bobo would have passed him on the depth chart by now anyways with how well he's been playing. 
I think it's now a question of how much is he going to help this team? And remember, Green Bay was playing some starters in this game, and so it wasn't like he was doing this all against backups. I don't know exactly who was in when he made that touchdown catch, but he got behind the defense. One thing that's remarkable at what he's doing is despite all the questions about his speed, he's actually getting behind defenders, and he's he's done so well despite the 40 time that people are becoming delusional, and I'm hearing left and right on Twitter all these you know self-styled experts are saying, well, this just shows that 40 times don't matter for wide receivers. Come on, of course 40 times matter for wide receivers. I think what Bobo is showing everybody is Bobo. that it's not the a death knell when you run a slow 40 time. It just means that, like he's doing, you have to do so many other things really well. And he's done so many other things right, really well. Two he's got follow-ups. Great hands. Two or three follow-ups on the Bobo story that Brady loves so much. How much of this, honestly, is about the name Bobo? Do we love him because his name is Bobo? If his name was Jackson, would we be all in on the story? That's number one. You could take these in any order. Number okay. two, is this Joe Juravicious 2.0? Because I watch him and I think of Joe Juravicious. And number three is, based on what you tell me, when they lace him up for real against the Rams in 10 days or whatever it is, two weeks, he would have to be their number three wide receiver when they go to three wide receiver sets if Jackson, Smith, and Jigba isn't ready to play by then. Yeah, and I'll, I'll do these in reverse order. But yeah, I mean, at this at this rate, he would be because, you know, Cody Thompson is maybe the other guy you would think about putting in that role. But he hasn't played. Uh, he didn't play in the Green Bay game because of a shoulder injury. He's sort of been in and out. He's a guy who's been around, but, you know, he's hurt right now. And, and again, Bobo has outplayed him. What's the guy's name from Washington State that makes plays at the end of these games? I like him, the wide receiver. Aesop Winston Jr. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, had, he had a good game in the Green Bay game. You know, had kind of the boneheaded play on the punt return where he caught it, you know, fair caught it at the five yard line while moving backwards. But yeah, I think he's got a chance, but certainly, you know, he's hasn't done anything okay. close to what Bobo has done. Bobo. Joe Jerevicious was the guy that you brought up. I think he was maybe a little bit faster. I want to say he was sort of like a four six. Everyone guy, was faster, Brady. If I do a 2.0 with somebody who is as slow as this guy, it would have to be like a Newport High School wide receiver. I don't have anybody. Joe Jerevicious is the best that I can do. Yeah, Ed McCaffrey, I've heard that before. Okay. People are telling me that, oh, well, you know, Steve Largent ran a 4 7 so 40 time doesn't matter. Yeah, that was 40 years ago that he did that. The game has changed a little bit since then. And in terms of the last name, Bobo. Yeah, yeah Bobo. Yes, it is a great Bobo. Bobo. I, uh, it is a great name. I did some power rankings, Bobo Power Bobo Rankings. Bobo Power Bobo, Rankings, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, who, you know, the Apple Cup legend, Philip Bobo sure. in the Snow Bowl. Yeah. Uh, Bobo from the Howard Stern Show. Okay. Uh, Mike Bobo. There was a gorilla at the Woodland Park. Park Zoo named Bobo a number of years ago. So got a lot of lot of no, notable Bobos. Okay. So very few starters are regular. Oh, you only did one. So give me the other two. Sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Uh, the second one is that this cornerback battle is about to get really interesting because, uh, A, you've got Devin Witherspoon, who was, according to Pete Carroll uh, last week, said that the number five overall pick is on track to get back to actual practice this coming week. Now, he was back in the walkthroughs, which is how they've kind of been bringing guys back from injuries as they'll get them in the walkthroughs first it's the you know slower tempo where you're really getting mental reps but you are running around a little bit and then you ease them back into practice and so he's going to have two solid weeks before the season opener i think that's still enough time to win one of those 
jobs that he's been uh, battling for. I th- still think that he's missed too much time to win both of those jobs. That would be a ton to put on a rookie's plate, especially a guy who's missed as much time as he has. But look, Mike Jackson is not exactly slamming the door shut at left cornerback. He's you know, your he defensive star catches. of the training camp. He's, I know he's Brady Henderson's training camp MVP. No, and I'm or, telling or you, Mitch, get all, by all of that happened. He got passed by Bobo, didn't he? He did. Yeah, he's had, he's had kind of some rough moments the last couple of preseason games. Now, granted, in Green Bay, the touchdown he allowed that was a really tough throw to defend, and it was against a number one receiver. Uh, and he he did come back and block the PAT. Then he had another nice play in coverage uh, later in that game. But you know, he's not exactly slamming the door shut on that mm-hmm. job. And Trey Brown is still competing for that job as well. And mm-hmm. so I think it's in Jackson's case look I'm telling you he everything I said about him in the spring and in training camp was true I think what you're seeing is this is just kind of what happens with young players is they're up and down and it's not like they all of a sudden become good and they stay good and you know it's sort of like you and me in our golf games like you go through rough patches and you're up and down and Speak for yourself. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I guess you're just, you know, firing in low 70s every single time you play. Uh, wouldn't that be nice? But um, so, yeah, that battle is about to become more interesting. And then uh, the third one is that they're going to have to add to that defensive line rotation. And and that's, yeah. you know, not really a takeaway from this game in particular. I know they gave up 160 yards rushing again. They were, you know, it was a lot of backups playing against some Green Bay starters. But a couple guys you didn't see in this game were the two draft picks, uh, Mike Morris the fifth round pick who's was has been set to plays you know in that defensive end rotation and then uh Cameron Young the nose tackle they drafted in the fourth round I think those guys especially Young have just missed so much time in camp uh Young's got a calf injury Morris has been out for a couple weeks with a shoulder injury just haven't seen enough of them to really say like okay how much can you actually help this group you you know obviously Draymond Jones uh, Jaron Reed Mario Edwards Jr. are going to be the starters Miles Adams is going to be one of the backups and then beyond that you don't really know and so I think they've you'd like to have probably seven guys on the roster knowing that six of those guys uh, at least you want to have active on game day and I think they need at least one maybe two bodies there and, and that brings back that goes back to the conversation of okay if you feel like Witherspoon or Trey Brown are gonna, you know, take one of those or take those starting jobs, do you think about, you know, seeing what you could get for Mike Jackson? I still don't think that makes sense if you're just dumping him for a mid-round pick next year because, you know, he's a, a young player on a cheap contract. But if he could actually get a piece back who could help you right now on your defensive line, then I think that becomes a consideration. Peter King is on this particular podcast with you, episode two hundred and fifty-two. He was out at the Seahawks headquarters the other day, and I asked him about the defensive tackle, and he reminds me something that we all know but we sometimes forget, and that is come Tuesday, Wednesday, there are going to be like 1,200 NFL players that are available. 1,200 NFL football players are going to become available, and he said, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, something like, I'd be shocked if John Schneider isn't really active with those 1,200, and if one or two of those defensive, interior defensive linemen aren't on the Seahawks 53 or whatever it is come opening day. Yeah, and chances are you don't have to give up Mike Jackson to get that guy because, like you said, a ton of guys are going to get cut. Teams are trimming their rosters from 90 to 53 on Tuesday. There's going to be some guys out there who can help them, and maybe it does end up being you know, Mike Morris and and Cameron Young, but again, we just uh, haven't seen seen anything from them to say that they can step in right away and, and be like rotational dudes for them. 
I saw on Twitter, and, and I should point out ESPN.com, of course, that you've already projected your final 53, yes? Yes. Okay. Now, yeah, I, I do reserve the right to make Change. any changes to that yeah. between now and Tuesday okay. afternoon. But okay, yes, that is, but, but I guess there. my question was going to be, and that was just a way of promoting. I was just going to, without you having to ring the bell, I was just promoting you. your work on ESPN, ESPN.com. Are there uh, any intriguing decisions left? Did anybody play their way off the bubble and in to the field on uh, preseason game number three? Did anybody lose a job in preseason game number three? Did this exercise take more concentration on your behalf this year than in normal years, or was it an easy one? Now, like usually, there's really like, you know, three or four spots that you pretty much know. Uh, maybe that's being generous. There's probably four or five spots every year where you're sort of wondering about. You typically know the, you know, 47, 48 guys. And then it's, okay, who's going to be the last wide receiver? Who's going to be the last cornerback? And then, you know, injuries also play into that of, okay, are they going to keep this guy and then put him on IR because he's not going to be ready and all that stuff. And so uh, one guy who comes to mind, you know, especially from this final preseason game was Levi Bell and okay. he's been doing quite a bit for them uh, he's naturally an outside linebacker we've seen him play inside also seen him play some fullback when Nick Ballor has been out saw that big short round body dropping into coverage even at, at some point in the Green Bay game and so really active player the the term that comes to mind is you hear about guys playing with their hair on fire uh, he does that I, I still think that uh, Tyreek Smith is ahead of him on the depth chart just because they spent a fifth round pick on him last year. And I know they've uh, been excited about him and what he's done. But, you know, there was an injury coming out of this game. Derek Hall uh, hurt his shoulder against Green Bay. And so that's three of the top four draft choices that are currently hurt and their availability for game number one in question. So let's go through it a little bit. I don't think we have to do much on the offense. You just told us that Bobo if Smith and Jigba's not ready, would probably be the third wide receiver. We know who the offensive linemen are. We know who the quarterback is. We know who the two running backs are, at least the main running backs. How about the tight end position? How many two tight end sets and how are they going to rotate those three guys, those three named tight ends? Yeah, and my guess is they do only keep three on the 53-man roster. Obviously, okay. Noah Fant, Will Disley, Colby Parkinson. So that would leave uh, Tyler Mabry as the, the first you know uh, odd man out. And I just think, you know, look, they leaned a lot on tight ends last year. They ran a ton of two and even uh, some three tight end sets last year because that was the strength of their, you know, passing game personnel wise. I think whenever Jackson Smith and Jigba gets back, you're going to see a lot more three receiver sets uh, in fewer of the two and three tight end sets. And okay. so that's, again, why I only think they're going to keep three. I don't think there's much of a question okay. there. Which takes us, I think, to the defensive side of the football, unless there's other question marks playing time on offense, and I can't think of any. You just kind of casually went through it. I want to repeat what you said. Read on the nose, Edwards in yep. the 3-4, Edwards and Draymond Jones, who I contend is maybe the most important Seahawks player on the defense. And then we've got Nwosu, we've got Mafe, we've got Wagner, do we think Jordan Brooks is going to start opening day against the Rams? Are we worried about the uh, the concussion to Devin Bush? And then we'll work our way. Obviously, we'll work our way back into the defensive backfield. What about those those front seven guys? 
Yeah, so Jordan Brooks, by all accounts, he's going to be ready by week one. Pete Carroll even told reporters after the Green Bay game that he'd be, quote, shocked if Brooks isn't back by week one. But the guy you mentioned there, Devin Bush, is still going to be an important player for them. Jordan Brooks is still going to be less than nine months removed from the ACL injury. So it's not like they're going to stick him out there and play him, you know, 60 snaps a game. They're going to have to spell him. And that's why, you know, they would do that with Devin Bush. Now, Devin Bush suffered a concussion uh, in the Green Bay game. It sounds like he's going to be okay. You know, got two weeks to go before the season opener. So right. uh, he'll be back out there. But the the point there is that don't forget about Devin Bush because they're going to need him to, to give Jordan Brooks a breather. And then the secondary, we'll get to Jamal Adams' news in a moment we've got digs at safety we've got love at safety we've got Tariq woolen on one corner on one side you just went through the uh the dilemma on the other side is witherspoon ready physically if he's not if he is does he play does jackson play who plays in the slot uh let's say witherspoon is not available which makes let's say jackson the queasy starter on that side at corner, who's the uh, who's the slot guy? Is that Kobe Bryant? Is that Trey Brown? Is that uh, somebody that I'm not mentioning? It, it would definitely be Kobe Bryant. Kobe and, Bryant. And it's okay. yeah. That that nickelback job is between uh, Witherspoon and Bryant, and you know you've seen Bryant work at. Uh, safety, safety quite a bit, yeah, yeah, and and you saw Artie Burns actually play Nickelback in the in the Green Bay game, but I, I think that if if it's not Witherspoon there, it's going to be Kobe Bryant. And I mentioned this I think last time we talked, but their Week One opponent is the Rams, who have probably the best slot receiver in the NFL at Cooper Cup, and it sounds like he's going to be healthy. He's been battling, I think, a hamstring injury, but I don't know if that's a, a you know matchup that you want to throw Devin Witherspoon out there right away. Look, I don't know what they're going to do. I know he's going to be filling a big role at some, you know, this season, but I just don't know what it's going to okay. look like in week one. Okay. Jamal Adams passes the physical, but Pete Carroll is quick to tell everybody out there, hold on, hold on, don't get so excited. This doesn't mean that he's returning to practice full speed. This doesn't mean he's ready to play football. What does it mean? It means that he is ready to take part in the walkthroughs. And, and I mentioned earlier, that's sort of the way they've been ramping these guys back up from injuries. Clearly, Adams is a little bit behind Jordan Brooks, who got activated a couple weeks ago. And you even hear it again. Pete Carroll unequivocally say, or about as unequivocally as he will say, that Brooks is going to play in week one. Now, he is stopping well, well short of saying that about Adams. But what we do know now is that Adams can, he, he's able to take part in the walkthroughs, which he'll start doing this coming week. And I think typically you want a guy to do that, or at least what they've been doing is have a guy do that for about a week. So then that would put him back at practice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the week leading into the opener. So I, I still would guess that he's probably not going to play in week one, but I would also guess that he is going to be well enough uh, or on track to play soon enough to where you wouldn't have to put him on IR which would mean missing the first four games. So if they were to do that, they would carry him on their roster past the 53 cut down day and then put him on IR. uh, And then he would have to miss the first four games. I think he's going to be back by then, even if it's not the opener. So at the end of the day, preseason games are finished, couple of weeks of practice, then the Rams. I was going to ask you how we feel about the Seahawks. I, I don't have a feel. I know that optimism reigns supreme every year at about this time unless you are ravaged by injuries going into opening day and they kind of are maybe not ravaged but they've got a lot of injuries but 
If somebody said to me, Mitch, how do you feel right now with two weeks to go before the Rams game? I would say I don't know because I still need to know what happens when teams pound the football at them up the middle and what happens when quarterbacks drop back to pass. Are they going to get any interior pass rush? Until I know the answer of how the big boys are going to play on defense. I have no answer to that question because if the Derrick Henrys of the world, again, are going to come in here, of course, they don't play him, but if the Derrick Henrys of the world are going to come in and rush for 270 yards at 10 yards a carry, then all this is for naught. I mean, they're not going anywhere unless they can do better in the in the belly of the defense. What do you say when somebody asks you how we should feel? Generally, my response to that, and I do get that question a lot, is I, I think they should be a playoff team. I don't know if they've done enough to catch the 49ers, although the, the one obvious thing that they have going for them in that battle is that they've got a lot more quarterback stability. And, and the quarterback, even with Geno Smith coming out of nowhere last year, the quarterback is more of a known uh, commodity. And, and there's a lot of quarterback drama right. uh, going on with the Rams or with the 49ers, excuse me. But in, in terms of, of this team in Seattle, you know, I we, we did this uh, sort of assignment on ESPN.com where they asked us to identify what the team, uh, you know, the team that you cover, what they do best. And normally that's an easy question because you know sort of what the team is and what their identity is. I really don't know what the Seahawks do best. And that was something I really had to think about. I think, uh, in fact, I can't even remember what I said because I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think they're going to run the ball well. Don't know that. Uh, I think that they are going to be able to cover pretty well just because that secondary is so loaded. But that's, you know, sort of a projection based, you know, more on the guys they have now than what we saw last year. So I really don't know. I, I know that they've got, you know, a really accurate quarterback. I know that they've got some pretty good offensive weapons, but we just, you know, with Jackson Smith and Jigba being out, uh, maybe past week one, some of the other, you know, we haven't seen a whole lot of Ken Walker. I just really don't know. What you can, what this team is really going to be able to hang its hat on. I think they're going to be good in a lot of areas. I don't know what they're going to be great at. Again, the injuries aren't really making it any easier to figure that out. But you know what they're going to be bad at, if they're going to be bad at anything. If somebody said, write the same article in reverse, you are more, most concerned if you're the Seahawks about what? That would be an obvious, right? It'd be it'd be the run defense, yeah. And and look, they they're going to be better than last year because they can't really be all that worse than, you know, the thirtieth team in the NFL. I, I think part of their issues were again they go back to scheme and trying to change scheme. They also didn't have enough difference makers. They have more difference makers now, okay. and and this goes back to the Jamal Adams thing, which is why he's going to be a really important player for them. We tend to think about him only as a pass rusher because when he's on, he's great at that. But he can also really help them as a sideline to sideline run defender, especially now that he's going to be basically playing a lot of weak side linebacker. There he is, Brady Henderson, and as we get closer and closer to the opening Sunday against the Los Angeles Rams, he is a must-follow. Solid gold, Brady Henderson on Twitter, ESPN.com, Seahawks Insider, and of course, he is a prominent member, one-third of the Seahawks note table. We will have a major announcement about the final third of the Seahawks no table here in the coming days. Brady Anderson on episode 252 of Mitch Unfiltered. Thank you, Brady. All right. Thanks, Mitch. It's been a while since we caught up with Jordan Flowers, my main man of the Woodenville office 
of Cross Country Mortgage. How's everything going in Jordan's world? Hey, Mitch, it's going fantastic. I'm uh, chasing old Mitchie in the <laughs> Manager of the Year award for Little League Baseball. How many teams you got over there? You know, I was the manager of two, both my 10 and 8-year-old. Uh-huh. And I got to say... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be giving you a run for your money, Combined man. Combined record? Oh, gosh. We only lost probably six games. Oh, that's six more season. than I lose. I don't lose. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey. All right, let's talk about the market, the buying and selling market. It's not easy these days, but it's still doable, especially for home buyers. Give us your analysis, Jordan. Absolutely. Uh, inventory is still a little tight, but better than it was. But we are winning a lot of offers and using that 2-1 buy-down program we've talked about. Tell me about that program. Yes. So basically what we do is we are negotiating with the sellers, getting a price that they want, getting a credit towards uh, closing costs for our buyers. And they use that credit to then temporarily buy down the interest rate for the first two years of the home. So we get through this kind of elevated interest rate period with a 2% lower rate than what market is at. Are people still buying second homes and investment pieces? And what do you have to offer those types of clients? Yeah. People are buying in Arizona, California, Eastern Washington, kind of all over. We're helping people buy second homes and investment properties. We've got a couple great options for the investment property buyer, uh, especially uh, using that debt service underwriting ratio that we've talked about in the past where they don't even need to provide tax returns. Really what we look for is qualifying our buyers off of the cash flow of the property. So it's a great program right now for people looking to pick up investment properties at good prices get an income-producing property. Is there a way to have a best guess of what the next six months or a year look like? Does Jordan Flowers have a crystal ball? <laughs> I thought I had a crystal ball, but you know... <laughs> Is it Ernie Zampezi's story? I'm not going to say when. I'm just going to know it's coming, right? <laughs> like We're going to get through this, and they're coming back down. I think I think we should expect for the rest of this year rates to maintain in the 6% range. Maybe we see them by the end of the year get back down in the fives. But I will say when they do come back into the low sixes to mid fives, it will, again, open up floodgates for buyers and for sellers bringing properties on. So there is pent-up demand. It's sitting there, and it's just we're we're waiting. Well, I've always loved Jordan Flowers and his team at uh, both companies, not Cross Country Mortgage, the Woodenville office, because they're willing to take your phone call and be creative. Think outside the box. And to reach you on a phone that doesn't have a full voicemail, Jordan Flowers? <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I just got a new phone. Okay. My kids like to tease me that I'm the no upgrader. Okay. I don't upgrade my phone. Okay. I've had the same one for six years. All right. And I've now upgraded, and I'm setting up the voicemails. Everything's going to be Phone number? Here. Same phone number? Give us the number, please. 425-890-2957 is the best one to reach me on. The Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage and J-Flow, Jordan Flowers, without guys like him and companies like theirs where would Mitch Unfiltered be cross country mortgage Unfiltered I think Seattle is sneaky dangerous everybody looks at the NFC West and hands it to San Francisco totally understand that but I think Seattle is, uh, is going to give the 49ers a run for it Episode 252, Mitch Unfiltered, this voice, the one that you're about to hear, not mine, 
just screams NFL football, doesn't it? We're close. Ten days from the release of this podcast, the Chiefs and the Lions, I think. The champs host the team that got the Seahawks into the playoffs on the final game of the regular season in Green Bay on that Sunday night last year. Football morning in America, Peter King. How are you, Peter? Everything is going great, Mitch. How about you? Everything is well. You're in Seattle and I'm in Texas. Some The roles are reversed here, but that's okay. Somebody's holding down the fort. As of this recording, how many have you visited so far? I'm done now. I saw the Seahawks this week. Spent some time with Geno Smith and Bobby Wagner, Pete Carroll, other members of the organization. It was a very good visit. I learned a lot that I didn't really know. And one of the things, not that maybe they set out to do this intentionally, but I really think the Seahawks, it's almost sacrilegious to say, yeah, they're reinventing the Legion of Boom. But that's kind of what it feels like here, Mitch. When I spent the day at the uh, at the Seahawks the other day, I got this feeling that this is a team that really wanted to put a premium on rebuilding that defense. And I think that defense is going to be really good. So what kind of an overall feeling do you get? A lot of us are a little queasy about the fifth overall pick, Devin Witherspoon not practicing, being injured, not being out yeah. there, and we don't know what his status is for the start of the season. Now the wide receiver, the 20th overall pick from Ohio State, he's got a broken wrist. He may not be out there. I don't know if you visited the 49ers, but do you get the sense that the, Seahawks, did, yeah. the Seahawks are closer or not closer at this point than they were last year? First of all, I think you have to look at this in a long-haul way. You know, the Seahawks are always good, in my opinion, anyway, at looking at things in a long haul way. If you look at their secondary now, even if Witherspoon is MIA for a little while, and he might be, I don't know, Mitch, I don't have an injury update on him, but I think they're deep enough in the secondary. I mean, look, I, I don't think Jamal Adams is going to play pure safety anyway. I think he's going to play down in the box, and he's basically going to be pro football focus has very specific position designations on every play. And my gut feeling is that he'll line up an awful lot at linebacker and maybe more at linebacker than anything else now that Julian Love is in the house. Mm -hmm. But the one other thing I think right now is having Bobby Wagner back is helpful and having versatility on that defense is even more helpful. You know, the other day when I was there talking to people and Kobe Bryant can basically play five positions on that defense. You know, nickel, both safeties, and both outside corners. Now, I'm not saying that he will do that. I don't think he will. But he's a little bit of an ace in the hole, particularly when you have uh, a situation like Jamal Adams where you really don't know how much he's going to be available just because that's been his history in Seattle. And, you know, also because you don't really know for sure right now about Witherspoon, although I got the feeling the other day that he's going to be fine and he's probably going to start the season. But again, I don't know that for sure. But I do think, Mitch, that they have covered themselves, that John Schneider and you know, and Pete Carroll have kind of covered themselves in case that there are major injury issues on that defense. 
when somebody looks at the 2022 Seattle Seahawks, it's very obvious what the weakness of that football team was, Peter, and that was up the middle defensively. Interior defensive line, linebacker. Now, Bobby Wagner comes in, but we were all curious, and this is the John Schneider way, that he did not address the defensive tackle position in the high draft choices. They had four of the top 50 picks, Peter, and they drafted a cornerback, a wide receiver, a running back, and a defensive end. Now, they went out and they signed Draymond Jones from Denver, but he's interesting. Draymond Jones is going to be a big player on that defense. He's got to be. He's important. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, Yeah. I was going to say, doesn't he have to be because – Without a, yeah. def- without a high-profile defensive tackle in the draft and no other real free agents, if Draymond Jones isn't really, really good, almost special, then how much have they improved the weakness of the football team in the middle of that defensive line? It's a great question, and I think it's a very valid question. And look, every team you see around the deadline – I would expect Seattle to to add uh, either with a low round trade or, you know, on waivers. Mitch, I, I don't want to diminish that question. Please come back to it if you want to. But I want to segue just very, very slightly and explain to people who are listening to this the importance of what exactly is going to happen at the cut down date. OK, now. As some people may know, some people may not know that the NFL changed the rules on the cutdown this year. And there's only one cutdown. In essence, every team on Tuesday is going to have to cut from 90 to 53. When you cut 37 players, you're not cutting them and just getting rid of them. You are hoping to sign several or many. Uh back to your 16-player practice squad. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that I am positive that in that 24-hour period after rosters are being have been cut and teams are going to put 37 players out per team. Uh Think about that, Mitch. That's whatever it is, 1,300 players, 1,200 players. So there are going to be a lot of candidates that one man's trash is another man's opportunity, basically. Mm -hmm. And I would expect that, first of all, that the Seahawks are going to make some claims on defensive tackles, uh, maybe multiple. And they're also going to try to look around and see if maybe some player is going to be available for a low round pick who they'd like. So I think there's still going to be a lot of activity mm-hmm. in the next, in the next little while. So this is the one, the only reason I bring this up when you see the Seahawks 53 man roster, you have to know that that is not the Seahawks 53 man roster. It's the roster as of Tuesday at 1 PM or whatever it is. Yeah. But there's a very good chance there are going to be changes and perhaps significant changes to that roster. And And the one final thing I would say, because I just want to make absolutely sure I get to this. There's a player who probably a lot of people haven't heard very much about, but will. And his name is Jake Bobo, the wide receiver, an undrafted free agent. He ran a slow 40 time. That's why he didn't get drafted. Played four years at Duke, one year at UCLA. 
And he is going to play a major role early in the season, especially with Jackson Smith and Jake, probably unavailable opening day, but who knows? But I did want to make sure that people knew that this guy who most most people have never heard of, certainly not until the last couple of weeks, yeah. he's going to be a factor on this team, especially early on. Getting a lot of publicity. There's no question about that. You mentioned Peter, Peter King Football Morning in America. You mentioned that you were in San Francisco to see the 49ers. In your estimation, are they better, worse, or the same as they were in their near miss last year? Well, it depends better than the last three quarters of the championship game, <laughs> right. of course, okay. because they've got they've got their quarterback back. But I do not like the trade of Trey Lance at all. I don't think it's a smart move. The reason I don't think it's a smart move is that in four of the six years that Kyle Shanahan has been the coach of the 49ers, he's used three quarterbacks to start games. Now that's amazing when you think about it. Four of the six years, he's had three different quarterbacks. So what this move means, Brock Purdy's coming off very significant surgery. And right now they have claimed that his backup, Sam Darnold, was a better candidate to back up and to to have to play than Trey Lance. Well, okay. But, you know, Sam Darnold to me has been a very average player since he came into the league as the third pick in the draft, as Trey Lance was. I think they gave up on Trey Lance too soon. And there was no reason, there's no great motivation really to move him right now. So I don't like that. But this is a team that especially, I'm assuming that Bosa comes back for opening day. Obviously, he still has this contract dispute. The 49ers seemed optimistic when I was there that he will be back. And if he is back, I think his team is as good or better than it was okay. uh, late in the season last year. So you like him more than the Eagles at this moment in time? No, no, I don't. Uh, I like the Eagles. You like the Eagles more? I think the Eagles are the deepest team in football. Okay. After San Francisco and Philadelphia, the NFC, with Rodgers moving to the AFC, I'm trying to figure out who I like the best of the other group. And the other group would include, Peter, you know, Dallas, the Giants in the NFC East, the Vikings in Detroit in the North, Seattle in the West. I don't particularly like anybody in the South. Doesn't seem to be very good. Who would you put at the top, the two, one or two teams at the top of that next group behind San Francisco and Philadelphia, would you say? The NFC to me would be Philadelphia 1, San Francisco 2, line of demarcation, <laughs> Dallas 3, Smaller line of demarcation, Seattle four, Detroit five, Giants six. That's how I would look at the NFC right now. Okay. And you know, one of the reasons I'd look at I'd look at the NFC like that right now is is because Geno Smith was the rising tide that lifted all boats in Seattle last year. And I met with him at length at camp and he believes, you know, he's lighter, he's more athletic, he has worked, did a lot of speed drills in the offseason. He believes that he's going to run the ball more this year, that he's going to be more of a mobile quarterback than he has been uh, in his so far in the NFL. And obviously he's had a, a very odd career from starter to to bench warmer for seven years and now obviously to to starter again. But 
I think you may see a more mobile Geno Smith this year. Peter, what's the most intriguing division in the AFC? I'm looking at the North, and if Cleveland is better, and everybody's saying Pittsburgh is much better, and then you've already got the Ravens and Cincinnati, that could be an interesting race to the finish line with all those teams. And then the AFC East, the Jets are obviously better. Some saying they're going to make the playoffs. And you've got the Dolphins, and you've got the Bills, and you've got the Patriots. One of those two divisions, or is there another division that piques your curiosity? The AFC is endlessly fascinating. I think the AFC East is the most interesting division in football. You know, in one sentence on each team, one, the Buffalo Bills, can they overcome the disappointment of an absolutely crushing playoff loss at home to Cincinnati and an angry, dispirited Stephon Diggs? Can they get him back in the fold? Number two, the Jets. When you look at the Jets, there is no team in the NFL and good for hard knocks for, for forcing them on, I should say, because <laughs> that's the most intriguing team and the most intriguing player, I think, in football. And then Miami, I was highly, highly impressed with the work that Tua Tonga-Valoa did in this offseason to make absolutely sure that he does everything that he can do to try to stay healthy this year. Mm-hmm. From jujitsu and learning how to fall to basically getting light contact in the preseason because the whole coaching staff led by Mike McDaniel basically said, listen, it's unnatural for a player to not get hit for eight months and then to get, you know, uh, rolled over by a steamroller starting on September 11th. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you know, the New England Patriots always seem to have surprises because they're so secretive at everything they do. But I've got to believe they're going to be better on offense because of the Bill O'Brien being back instead of uh, just a collection of defensive and special teams coaches coaching that offense so i think it's a fascinating fascinating division from top to bottom i'm giving you a one word question one word answer you're not allowed any more than one word it's a yes or no very simply i i had lock and four on the other day and he said in las vegas the jets and aaron Rodgers are better than even money to make the playoffs they are favored to make the playoffs if you were to bet yes or no so i'll just ask you Yes or no, will the Jets be in the playoffs? Absolutely. Really? Wow. Mitch, but think about it. Think about it. Think back to one game of last year. They beat the Buffalo Bills at home with Zach Wilson playing like a frenetic mess. And they won that game because their defense absolutely stifled Josh Allen. And I want you just to go back and think a little bit and maybe look a little bit about some of the games they played on defense last year when Zach Wilson and those quarterbacks were not putting that defense in a big hole. Uh, You know, they have a professional quarterback now and they have a top five defense, even though the AFC is an absolute killer. Yeah, it's a killer. I don't see it's how they make, I don't see how they make it with the, because I'm but, trying to but, I'm, I'm running but, through the but, teams. I'm running but, through the teams. I can't figure out how they make it with all those. But teams. you're not you're not giving their defense okay. enough credit. All right. This is a top five defense. If you add Aaron Rodgers and the offensive rookie of the year and a dynamic running game. 
you know, where Dalvin Cook just fell out of the sky for them. To me, I I will not be shocked if they win that division. Wow. You are really high on the New York Jets. All right, two last. I'm not picking. I'm not picking them to win the division, <laughs> but I won't be surprised. But, I mean, Mitch, let me ask you this question. Yeah, you're a Dolphins guy. Yeah, I just want to ask you if you think about it right now. Yeah, put all your Dolphin hat aside and everything. Uh huh. Do you really think right now, looking at everything, including that defense? Ooh. Do you feel strongly that the Dolphins are better than the Jets? They might be. But that I, is I, that is almost a coin flip, I think. I, I think my, my problem is, and you're saying you're right, I, I'm not giving the Jets enough credit, especially defensively. My problem is there are three wild cards in the AFC, and I'm thinking about all those teams in the East that you mentioned. I think Pittsburgh's really good. I think the Ravens are good. I think the Bengals are good. I think the Browns are improved. You go out west and you've got the Chargers and you got the Chiefs. I don't know. It just feels like there's not enough chairs. It's musical chairs and there's not enough chairs for all those teams. Yeah. There aren't enough chairs for all those teams. Yeah. They're going to be two really good teams. I put it this way when I was, you know, after my camp tour, we were just, I was talking with the people on my tour, you know? Yeah. There are two teams in the AFC that won't make the playoffs that if they were in the NFC could reach the championship game. Okay. Two newsy things. I don't even know who they'll be, but, you yeah. know, anyway, go ahead. Two, two last newsy things. Well, one is not newsy. One is the Sean Payton, Russell Wilson era still remains interesting to those of us in Seattle. It's going to begin with Jerry Judy out. What's the thought around the league? Have you talked to anybody around the league about whether Russell Wilson is just going to bounce back under Sean Payton and be the player that he was in Seattle, or has that ship sailed? I I talked to Sean Payton on Friday at length about Russell Wilson. The feeling that I get is he's quietly very confident. And I say quietly because basically when Sean Payton went in there, he said to these guys, you know, basically he said, you guys talk too much. You just talk too much. You create problems when you open your mouth at all times. And I don't know this, but I think he meant Russell Wilson as one of them. Hey, I'm working out. I'm doing this. I get here at five in the morning. I did high knees on this airplane on the way on the way over to uh, London so I can be ready to play. I did this. I did that. And the bottom line, nobody gives a flying crap how hard you work. You're supposed to work like a dingbat mm-hmm. when you're, you're making $45 million. Don't tell me how hard you work. It's like Bill Parcells used to, it is a very old cliche, but he used to say, don't tell me how hard the labor was. Did you deliver the baby? That's it. That's all anybody cares about. Mm-hmm. Russell Wilson, to me, to me, has been far too concerned about his image and his you know, and all this stuff about work ethic and being a wonderful guy and all that stuff. Dude, play football, win the games, play great. That's all anybody cares about at the end of the day. Do you think he'll be as good as he was in Seattle or is... Ah, man. You know, think about it, Mitch. I think it was, what year was it, 20, that he had 40 touchdowns and completed 69% and whatever. He was a a great quarter. He was a top five quarterback on everybody's list. You know what it was last year to me? He put on too much weight because he, you know, he felt like he was getting to the point in his life where he wanted to be more of a pocket quarterback and all that. He's down to 212 now. His weight is down 12 or 13 pounds. 
I think he's going to be that mobile guy that he was throwing on the run, making plays happen on the run. He's got a great coach in Peyton to try to get the most out of him at this point. I just think that this is a gigantic year for him. I'm cautiously optimistic that he'll get back to more of a semblance of what he was late in his Seattle career rather than what he was in his first year at Denver. You were in Kansas City. Do you think that Chris Jones will miss football games, or do you think he'll take the best offer once we get close to the regular season opener on that Thursday night? I always think that players, especially Chris Jones, he's in a position where does he really want to miss a million dollars or a million and a half dollars per week, whatever the number is going to be, however they structure his contract. Does he want to make a stand for that? Will he make that money back? I think they'll find a way to get it done. Football morning in America. There's no better read. I always say it in the National Football League. And when you hear Peter King's voice on this show anyway, you know that it's right around the corner. Enjoy Seattle. Peter, thank you. Enjoy your family, and we'll catch up sometime very soon. Thank you for doing this. Thanks a million, Mitch. Have a great year. It's been a while since my friend and Mitch Unfiltered partner, John Waterstrat, joined us, and there's good reason. He's been busy. An exciting major facelift to some of the fireside showrooms. How are you, J-Dub? I'm doing great, Mitch. Thanks for having me back. And yes, it, it has been busy, and we're excited to unveil some new cool new projects. We have a new sales director that came along, and he's been putting his footprint on the showrooms, and we're excited about what he's doing. We're going to put some new fireplaces you've never seen before, and then we're redoing our whole outdoor kitchen area. Wow. The fantastic flagship Bellevue location was already beautiful, so I can't wait to drop by and see it. So what's the rumor about some big project you're coming up, some enormous fireplace that you guys are ready to install? Yes, our commercial department is doing a fantastic job, and as we've talked about before, we can do almost anything in fireplaces, and custom fireplaces are getting bigger and bigger, and we're hoping to uh, unveil the one of the largest fireplaces in North America. It's going to be pretty exciting stuff. How big? Roughly 25 feet. And you're not going to tell us where it is, but we'll be able to see it sometime? And we'll be able to see it, and we'll talk about it. Yeah, it'll be exciting. Oh, that's yeah. going to be fun. So now that we've reached, let's call it the off-season for fireplace use, it's actually, you and I talk about this, one of the better times of the year to start the process of redoing the fireplaces in your home, or like you guys did for us, an outdoor unit. Yes, I mean, when the weather gets nice out there, things go a little bit faster. So we're not fighting the weather, whether we have to extract a fireplace, put a new one in. And then again, outside as well, when you're out there, we can get something done pretty quickly for you right now. And so when you're looking at the off season and you have a schedule and, and you want to get something done quickly, it's the best time to do it. Yeah. Whether it's fireplaces or garage doors, begin your search at firesidehomesolutions.com. I'll bet you'll end your search there too. It's sponsors like John and Fireside that make our shows and growing guest lists possible. Fireside Home Solutions and FiresideHomeSolutions.com. Hey, look who it is. Katie Versio, the Director of Financial Planning, Evergreen Golf Call. Hi, Katie. The market's up. How's everything at Evergreen? 
I'm doing well, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Everything here is going well. How are you doing? Everybody is good here. I'm ready for the new trivia quiz. The theme today is what? Today we're doing a economic and market update. I'm okay. revisiting some of the questions we discussed at this time last year and just seeing how things have changed. Questions that I undoubtedly missed at this time last year. I'll try to get some answers right, and I'm ready for question number one from Evergreen Golf Call. So the Federal Reserve started increasing interest rates in March of 2022 in an effort to cool inflation and slow down the economy without tipping us into a recession. How many times has the Fed raised rates since March of 2022? Is it seven times, nine times, or 11? It's a lot. I'm throwing seven out. It's either nine or 11. 11 sounds extremely high. I'm gonna go nine. So it actually is 11 times. So the Fed has the fastest tightening cycle on record where interest rates have increased significantly. Now we see the two year treasury around 4.8%. So while we don't know what will happen moving forward, if they're going to raise again, if they'll pause or if they'll cut, we think now is a good time to lock in yields on fixed income. And of course, Mitch is in a familiar spot. Oh, for one, I'm ready for question number two. Okay, so in June of 2022, the inflation rate was 9.1%, the highest rate in four decades. What's the current inflation rate as of June 2023? Is it 3%, 4%, or 5%? Well, it's way down, but I don't think it's down to three, so I'll go 4% B again. It's actually 3%. Oh. So inflation has come down significantly over the last 12 months. In addition, unemployment has stayed low under 4%. Right now it's under 3.6%. What they've been doing appears to have had some effect on these markers. And there I am at 0 for 2. I'm probably staring at another 0% in the face. I'm ready for question number three. Have a little mercy on me, would you please, Katie? <laughs> All right, I'm giving you an easy one this time. So it's a true or false. Okay. Both stocks and bonds are up in 2023. Absolutely true. I'm going to get one right, Katie. Ding, ding, ding. That's right. <laughs> Stocks are up 19% and bonds are up a little over 2%. So this is following the worst year on record for a balanced portfolio that I know we've talked about in the past. So it's been a strong start in the first half of the year. All the ups and downs over the last many years make this a great time to learn more about my partner, Evergreen Golf Call, a one-stop shop for all of your investment needs. Learn about them at evergreengk.com. Unfiltered. Episode 252, Hotshot Scott is out. My old friend Dave Grosby is in, and we were talking, Gros, I don't know, in segment number one about this stretch of three, four, five weeks. The stretch run of the Major League Baseball mm -hmm. season with the Mariners as the hottest team in the sport. You've got the Seahawks a week and change away from opening up their 2023 season with the Rams. And you've got this Huskies team, this Huskies team that's in everybody's top 10 and some people's top eight or seven, maybe as front runners in the last season of the Pac-12. So I'm going to offer you a wager, Graz. You've never shied away from a wager, right? I'm going to offer you a wager. No, no, no. Win total. Here's okay. the wager. Huskies win total against the Seahawks' win total, and the Huskies get a, a half a game. 
Huskies plus a half, Seahawks minus a half. Regular season, though. No playoffs, no bowl games. Regular season, 12 games for the Huskies, 17 for the Seahawks. Win total, regular season. Huskies plus a half or Seahawks minus a half. Hmm. Boy, that's a good bet, man. That is, you should be setting lines down in <laughs> Vegas because that, that's going to get action on both sides. Yes, it is. Oh boy! All right, I'm gonna. I'll take. I'll take the Huskies. Huskies plus a half. The half game might be the difference. Yeah. So, what do you think? It maybe ten and two for the Huskies. That gets them to ten and a half. That would force the Seahawks to go eleven and six in the regular season, which might well, be a little bit of a stretch. I'm, Am I wrong about that? I'm thinking eleven wins for the Huskies. Eleven, 11 and wins one. For the Huskies. Eleven and one. Yeah. Really? They got a chance to be very, very good. Well, ten and two is very, very good. They're gonna play. Oregon, they're going to play USC, they're going to play mm-hmm. Utah, they're going to play Michigan yep. State, they're going to play Boise right. State. I mean, I th- I almost feel like that if you offered Husky fans right now 10-2, and two, they might just take it. You don't think so? Oh, yeah, yeah. sure they would. But, but I mean, I think, think they're going to be better than that. Yeah. Are you bullish on the Seahawks or not so much? The Seahawks have got some incredible things going for them. And, and I think, first in my book, is they've got um, two tackles who played as rookies. Yep who are going to be obviously now in their second year. The most important position, you can argue, on, on a team is left tackle. And they've got this great offensive line. They've got depth at running back now. They've got what looks like one of the best receiving cores in the game. Good tight ends. Everything looks good. And Geno at quarterback. Now, I was thinking about something the other day, though, Mitch. And maybe you can help me with this one. Mm-hmm. You know, I think preseason football is a waste of time, by the way. And I don't know why they keep playing it, but they do. <laughs> yeah. And they have. Yeah. And it's gone from four games to three games over the past couple of years. How many times do you think in Geno Smith's career has he not played a preseason game and then was going on to be the starting quarterback that season? <laughs> well, he's not going to do that this year because he played in preseason game number two a little bit, a couple of series anyway. But, yeah, uh, but yeah. that doesn't really count. Uh, um, never, N- never, ever, ever. I mean, last year when he went to the Pro Bowl, he was playing a lot in the preseason because we, right. we, we had a quarterback competition, didn't we, between Drew Locke? We Lock. did. By the way, Drew, I don't know if you – I know you think it's a waste of time, so maybe you didn't watch it. I was not unimpressed with Drew Locke. I, I thought Drew Locke showed a little bit of something there in the preseason, Graz. I, I, I agree. I, agree. I, I think he looked good. I watched good. the last game, yeah. and he, he, he looked, looked nice, in particular on, the, on that uh, end of the first half drive uh, that they had against, um, against the Packers they just played. Yeah, yeah, he showed some stuff. I mean, he did. So we'll see. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, how Geno does as, as a number one with, with every eye on him, which is what it's going to be like. But, you know, you've got a great offense there. You've got a defense that, that looks good, too, although I don't know they look as good. I think they still have some concerns in the middle. Uh, you know, Bobby Wagner seems ageless, but we do know that when age comes and gets you in football, it gets you hard and gets you fast. So we'll see. You know, the NFL is, we know what it's like. I mean, it's just yeah. incredibly competitive. I'm bullish on the Seahawks. I mean, I think they're going to be good. But I, I really think Washington, the University of Washington, has a chance to be a real special team this year. Do you think the Seahawks have a chance to run down the 49ers or not in the NFC West? It's going to be a real challenge. I mean, we kind of, if you look at last year, I mean, they're, they're what they're aiming for. And the last time they saw them, they, they got beat by 18 after having a halftime lead in, in the playoff game. Yeah. They made their decision at quarterback, which was kind of interesting that they wind up going with Mr. Irrelevant. And uh, Garoppolo is gone, obviously, and Trey, Trey Lance is now a cowboy. So, you know, they, they've got the guy they want there at quarterback. Um, this is a year that they're running out of time in San Francisco, obviously. 
their guys are getting older and the contracts are coming up. So got to be a sense of desperation for them a little bit. So I, that's clearly the challenge, the team to beat. But, you know, I go back to Mitch, the, the point that, you know, in the NFL, you never know who's ready to jump. And last year, that would have been the Seahawks. Yeah. No one was looking at the Seahawks being the kind of team that they were. So, I mean, you've always got to be worried that someone is going to be able to jump. Is someone in their division that can jump? Well, it's possible. You, it doesn't look like it on paper, but it's possible that you the division you, can be tougher than it was. You don't think the Seahawks are going to blow my 25 to 1 bet on the on the Dolphins in the Super Bowl, do you? You don't think they're going to cost me $525 that I got from the Gras? As a Super Bowl? In the Super yeah, Bowl? Yeah, no. I don't, I don't know that I think okay. the Seahawks are going to be in the okay. Super Bowl this right. year. I listened to you talk about the Seahawks, and I was curious about a couple of words you used that i reluctant to use. Let's put it that way. Okay. You said they have a great offensive line. To me, not only with the Seahawks, but obviously every NFL team since the beginning of time, you find me a team, you find me an NFL team that's got a great offensive line and a great defensive line, and I don't give a rat's ass about the quarterback, right. the wide receiver. You show me a, do- a team with a dominant offensive line and a dominant defensive line, and I'll show you a team that has a chance. Always a puncher's right. chance, no matter what they're getting from the quarterback position. Now, if you ask me, as we get ready for the Rams opener, what's keeping me up at night, Gross, if I'm a Seahawks fan? I'll start with the defensive line and in particular the inside mm-hmm. of the defensive line. I still and I can't tell anything from preseason because back in no. back in the last 15 years it used to be the quarterback doesn't play much, the running backs don't play much and maybe the wide receivers don't play much, but everybody else plays in preseason. Now we've gotten to the point where no Wagner, no Daryl Taylor, no Jones, no Adams, no Love, no – I mean, these guys, none of these guys played a lick in the right. uh, in the three. So how do I know? I watched last year, as you did and everybody else, I watched teams come in, even into this stadium, and bludgeon the Seattle Seahawks mm-hmm. defense. I watched – remember the Derrick Henry game? How many yards yeah. did Derrick Henry – was he eight yards a carry, ten yards? He had over 200 yards, and they beat him, I think, in overtime on a long Derrick Henry run, like 70 or 80 yards. I watched it too often last year. I watched the middle, and I'm not just talking about the middle of the defensive line. I'm talking about the middle linebackers and, to a lesser extent, the safeties. You got to convince me before I'm ready to get on the bandwagon fully that that's an improved unit. And you know what? John Schneider says, and he always says it, look, I'm not going to force picks. I don't care what our needs are. I'm not forcing picks. And what do you do with those four, those top four out of 50 picks? He picked a a cornerback. Mm -hmm. He picked a wide receiver. He picked a Mm -hmm. running back of all things. And then he picked a defensive end. He did not pick a defensive tackle, the guy from Georgia, Jalen Carter that everybody was talking about. He decided he wasn't a fit for the Seahawks. So they didn't address the middle of that defensive line in the draft. Then they went out and got Bobby Wagner. Okay, I don't know. I'll say what you said. I don't know. I seem to remember his last year in Seattle being just okay before he went off to Los Angeles to play with the Rams. And Father Time catches all of us, except for me, of course. <laughs> and so I start right there. I'm worried about now to go back to your point. You said they've got two tackles, two young tackles that are going to be in their second year. Should be exponentially better. Should be better. A great off. You said they're going to have a great offensive line. Now, I haven't seen 
a great Seattle Seahawks offensive line since Walter Jones yep. and, and Steve Hutchinson and Robbie Tobeck in that group. That was a great offensive line. Mm-hmm. And I have been watching shabby center play. Now, Evan Brown's going to be the new center. We'll see. I've seen some guards look crappy. Phil Haynes, I'm not sure about. Damian Lewis was earmarked for stardom at the early stages of his career, but he is he has leveled off a little bit. He's a good, not great guard. I love the Gras, but I have got to be I got to see it before I'm going to believe. I think you the will. Seattle Seahawks have a great. You're talking top five in football, top seven in football. By the time the year is over, line? yes, I think they'll be considered one of the top five. Oh boy. Top at that. least the top ten offensive line, because I mean you've got the you got youth at those two key positions, and you've got so many other weapons. They they may look better than they really are because of the wide receiver crew that they have and the running back crew that they have and the tight ends that they have. Well, if they have a great offensive line, then these running backs are all going to be. I mean, it's going to be Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and uh, Mercury Morris <laughs> all over again. Graz. I mean, it's it should be it should they be were pretty a great, good last year, Mitchie. Yeah, they were great last year. They were pretty good last they year, good, and, yeah. and you know I think there's reason to believe they're going to be better. All right. All right. And I just love the wide receiver core. I, I, look, I agree with you entirely on the defensive side of things. And remember the the kid they took with the first pick, Wetherspoon. He's a rookie. He's not going to be able to contribute for weeks. Right. I don't care how how great he looked in college, or or even if they took him number one. If you don't play at all as a rookie. In, in preseason games or at least practice That's right. for, during the course of the preseason. Right. You know, you're never ready to start the season. So they're not going to get much from him this year, I wouldn't think. Before we end the show, we typically, Hotshot and I, as you know, because you're a listener, uh, Hotshot and I like to go through some of the RIPs, some of the, the passings of the previous week, both in the world of sports and non-sports. And I've brought one in for you today, Graz. One guy. Yep. One His name one. is Bob Barker, who mm-hmm. passed away this past weekend at the age of 99. Everybody knows who Bob Barker is from The Price is Right for nearly four decades. Legions. Happy Gilmore. Yeah, Happy Gilmore. Giddy Americans, luxury vacations, and brand new cars. He died Saturday at the age of 99 in his Hollywood Hills section home of Los Angeles. 99. He was born on December 12, 1923. Now, the reason I bring him up is, I got to tell you, I learned in his passing some things that I don't think I have ever known before. Hmm. I did Touché. not. I did not know that Bob Barker was born in Snohomish County, Washington. I never remember really? here. That's true. Did you know that, Gross? No, 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 no. I a, did not. A, a town called Darrington, Washington, December twelfth, nineteen twenty-three. And I'll go one step further with you. Okay. His family moved out of Snohomish. And they moved to, I, I, I want to say Missouri, but I might not have that right. He was a basketball player. He was a scholarship, a college scholarship hoops phenom at Drury College in 1941. I kid you not. He was at Drury College in Springfield as a basketball recruit, a scholarship basketball player. He does look a little tall. What, would he, what do you think he was in his heyday? Was he, you think about 6'3", 6'4"? No. 6'3", or 6'4", six, yeah, six, probably. 6'4", he, uh, of course, he, the NBA wasn't an option back then. No, I don't know that he was ever. <laughs> I don't know that he was ever NBA caliber. But he he dropped out of college. He enlisted in the Naval Aviation Cadet when World War II broke out. He then went back to college after he served the United States. 
graduated summa cum laude in 1947 and then began his radio and television career in places like Burbank, California and, I kid you not, West Palm Beach, Florida in 1948, 1949, where he was a, he was a DJ. Uh, that's the way a lot of these guys started their careers. And right. Uh, in 19, my favorite uh, clip from the Los Angeles Times article, 1945, he married Dorothy Joe Gideon, his high school sweetheart, who once explained to the Los Angeles Times the secret of their marriage, Cross. Yeah. She said, I love Bob Barker, and Bob Barker loves Bob Barker. And that's the <laughs> thing. <laughs> Uh, no, that's funny. <laughs> no, that's funny. I can see why they lasted. Oh, gosh. Bob Barker gone at the age of 99 years old, guys. Wow. Always have your pet spayed and neutered. That's what he said. An animal lover. After every show, right? Or at the very, very yeah. end of every show? That's right. Yeah. And then um, it was amazing what a bump he got from uh, Happy Gilmore, wasn't it? Huge. In fact, I read a um, a nice little Twitter tribute. I guess it's X now. X tribute from Adam yeah. Sandler himself, who called him a darling of a man and a nice gentleman. It was so nice to work with him and hang out with him for a while on the set of Happy Gilmore. Yeah, and he was he really opened some eyes. What by as those guys can you forget those guys really are talented. Yeah, they don't just have one lane. They really do have ability beyond that. And he was he was sensational in that role. Do we all have ability? Gross, do we all have that? Uh... Some of us. <laughs> in some ways. It's so hard to figure out what it is, though, isn't it? <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, the voice of Dave Grosby. What a thrill it is to have you back, Gross. I hope you'll do it again. Thanks for filling in for Hot Shot Scott. We appreciate it very much. Always a pleasure, Mitchie. Thanks for having me on. Episode 252, ladies and gentlemen, in the books.